been a while since I did this, but I think I still mostly have the hang of it. Welcome to episode four of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Our guests today are Lin Yu, Christine Welchel, and Monia Day. I remember that order. It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So right now, can we go in that order? Each of you briefly state where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Lin. Hey, I'm Lynn. I am calling in from Los Angeles, California, and I am a writer and also the co-founder of Trivia LA, which some of you who are listening may have played their games online before. Cool. Christine? I am coming from Spring Hill, Tennessee, and I am a music teacher. I teach piano and violin lessons, and I'm a church organist. All right. And Mania? Hi, I'm Monia Day. I'm coming from the Los Angeles area as well, and I'm a journalist and physician. All right. All right, this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions will mostly serve as a warm-up, not in the sense of being easy, but giving you a challenge, getting your mind working. It'll also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. So for this round only, you will be answering as individuals. The first person the question is directed at misses. It'll go to the second, then the third of the first two miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think, and some potential answers could get taken off the table. We'll rotate to each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second position, three in third position. The rules will change after this round, and I'll explain that when it happens. And just a, a general reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process, so don't internalize your thinking share your process, share any interesting thoughts or connections you have. You don't have to talk for the sake of talking, though. We're not looking for filler. All right, so we will begin with Lynn in first position on question one. Let's do it. All right, and I will paste the questions into the chat so you can read them as well, if necessary. So here's your question. What was the primary occupation of Wayne DeGraw, father of singer Gavin DeGraw? Ooh, interesting. Well... I know Gavin DeGraw, I actually know his songs, and I really like um, his album that came out in like 2016, 2017. He's famous for, was he an American Idol contestant? Maybe. I think He's famous for that one song, Not Over You. I know he has a song about like being a soldier or something like that, so I'm going to go ahead and guess soldier. All right, good guess, but not correct. Christine? Yeah, Christine. Okay, the only thing I really know about Gavin DeGraw is, I think he's the one who did that song, I Don't Want to Be Anything Other Than What I've Been Trying to Be Lately. He also did that song. (laughs) We can name multiple Gavin DeGraw songs. Yes. I have no idea what the name of that song is. The only first thing that popped in my mind was some sort of professional athlete. So I'm going to say hockey player. All right. Another good guess. Not correct. Monia? For some reason, maybe it's because he sounds like a good decent boy when he's coming through the airwaves the first instinct i had was preacher or priest so i'm just going with that because i have no other context all right yeah so all, all good guesses but christine was on the right track she pointed out his famous song the theme from one tree hill i don't want to be and what's the very first line of that song i have no idea i don't want to be anything other than a prison guard son oh hmm oh. Yes, that was based on his own life, being the son. I think his father also played music, which is where he got it from. But as his main job, he was a prison guard. I relate more to the um, sad, heartbroken, not over you song, which is Mm. the only one I recall here. All right. Well, with Christine in first position now, another chance to display pop music expertise. 
Everyone knows that The Suburbs is Arcade Fire's third studio album and won them the 2011 Album of the Year Grammy. Uh (laughs) At least I hope everyone knows that. But which city suburbs are that album about? Okay, well, you said everyone knows. (laughs) And I have not even heard of Arcade Fire, so this is (laughs) (laughs) for me. Uh, uh, 2011 is sort of a... um, a big gap in my part of the big gap of my knowledge when I just had very small children. So pop culture wasn't really my thing. Let's see. So arcade, I really have absolutely no idea. So I'm just going to pick a city and just say Boston. So you're one of those people who thought the suburbs was a band and arcade fire was their album. Okay. (laughs) No, no, I didn't know. (laughs) I've used that joke once before on this podcast, and no one laughed that time either. But uh, anyway, uh, Monia? Okay, this this is not falling under my 90s music category, right? No. <laughs> None of these questions are related to your categories. Well, that'll be the next few rounds. So the, pr- the problem with the I Created Fire is that when I hear their name or their music, I am too blinded by rage because... <laughs> The Arcade Fire got up at their Coachella set and tricked the audience into believing that Daft Punk was returning to Coachella. I have never forgiven them since. That being said, I I have heard this question before a long time ago, and I'm not 100% sure of the answer, but uh, I'm going to guess Toronto. Right, yeah. People heavily associate Arcade Fire with Toronto and think of them as a Canadian band, which is why this is a fun question, because even though that is what most people would guess, it is not the correct answer. Lynn? I, okay, so thank you, Monia, for eliminating Toronto for me, because I know (laughs) they are Canadian, and I was coming, I was, I was trying to figure out Toronto or Vancouver, but now that Yogesh says that you know they might not be or that is not correct i'm thinking it might not be canadian at all it could be an american city like seattle or something they feel very seattle-y and vancouver and seattle are not too far from each other but you know i'm gonna go ahead and go with vancouver all right yeah as i've mentioned a few times i'm in a different vancouver right now and the one on the american side but this is not a veiled tribute to my current city of right <laughs> It's actually pointing toward an interesting fact. Even though people associate Arcade Fire with Canada, their frontman, Wynn Butler, and his brother, Will Butler, who is also part of the band, they actually grew up in the Woodlands, a suburb outside of Houston, Texas. Wow. Completely different. All right. Was never going to get there. But interesting. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. Although the question itself that I just read was accurate, I made a bit of an oversight in my supplemental information. Arcade Fire was founded in Montreal, not Toronto or Vancouver. All right. And again, you know, remember to you know listen to the wording of these questions for possible hints, starting now with Monia on this one. MindGeek is a really, really great internet company primarily devoted to producing and distributing what? Is a MindGeek. Oh, I've got all these little pop-ups on my screen. There we go. All right. Really, really great internet company for distributing what? So many things it could be. It could be greeting cards. It could be software. 
Difficult to say. How about memes? Memes? Is that is that your answer? Sure. All right. Good guess. Lynn? I have that thought, too. <laughs> but, um... Good. It wasn't as far out of left field as I thought. Right. Really, really great, I feel like, as a context clue hint. MindGeek is a really, really great internet company. Really, really great. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to say MindGeek. Um, like, puzzles. All right. Good guess. If not correct. Christine? I may be mixing this up with something else that I heard recently that I was talking to some friends and they were talking about some company that was going out of business and that they had bought a bunch of stuff from them. It was a name that sounded kind of like MindGeek, but I can't remember for certain. So I'm going to go ahead and go in that direction because I have no better guess. And I'm going to say T-shirts, like right. geek T-shirts. Yeah, I think I, I vaguely know what company you're talking about, but yeah, that's not uh, not this one. This is a, you can't really tell anything from its name, which is why I threw in a hint, which is really a musical theater hint in disguise. And if you know the song uh, "The Internet Is Really Really Great" from Avenue Q, I thought that was "The Internet Is for Porn." Yes, the internet is for porn, and MindGeek is in fact a company that produces and distributes pornography. Well, <laughs> Yes. Generally, when I ask that, it's almost always answered by men, which surprises me because, you know, musical theater is a female skewing category. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, next question, starting with Lynn. An August 1996 report by the U.S. Chess Federation Ratings Committee stated that a man named Claude Bloodgood, quote, who by his own admission is probably not better than expert strength, has a rating in the high 2600s. Thus, Bloodgood's name appears on the USCF Top 50 list when it is not clear his strength is as high as his rating indicates, end quote. The committee chose to solve this issue by barring what category of people from appearing on USCF Top 50 lists? By barring what category of people from appearing? U.S. Chess Federation, uh, ooh, what category of people? I'm going to go ahead and, and guess something like amateurs. All right, I I see your logic there. That's a good guess, but not correct. Christine? Well, my first thought was minors, but you said a man named Claude Bloodgood, so that would seem to indicate that he's an adult. So that leaves what category? The only thing that's coming to my mind would be college students, but that doesn't make any sense at all. So I really hate to give that as an answer, but I'm sort of blanking out on anything else. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just say college students. All right. Another good guess, but not correct. Monia? I'm suspicious about whether Claude Bloodgood is a real name, so I'm going to go with fictional characters. Oh, that's interesting. I like that guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Exactly what you want to hear from the trivia game show host. Right. <laughs> that's interesting. Not necessarily really correct. <laughs> Yeah, so the uh, the way the rating systems work, right, is that your rating goes up when you beat players who are better than you or more highly rated than you. So a lot will depend on of who you face. And statistically, it can be thrown off when there's a small pool of players who just keep playing each other over and over again, which is what had happened in this case. It's not entirely clear whether this was a result of direct manipulation or just a statistical quirk that didn't take into account that certain groups of people just won't, you know, mix with the outside world. But in terms of what kind of people would be locked into a small pool and play each other over and over, I mean, college students was kind of the right thought. People who were even more confined than college students 
prisoners. Prisoners. Oh. Got a lot of prison trivia today, Yogesh. Prison guard's son, prison inmates playing chess. All right, everybody keep prisons on the brain. Keep prison on your mind. (laughs) Yogesh questions. The next answer, Leavenworth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, that... I actually shuffled a few questions around because they seemed a little too similar. It it didn't even click that those two questions were kind of about the same thing. (laughs) Uh, Also, that is rude of the U.S. Chess Federation to bar prison inmates from a top 50 list. But anyways. Yeah, it's almost like they've done something to deserve being excluded. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of feel bad that I've offended Claude Bloodgood, who's now a real person. (laughs) If you knew what he was in prison for, you'd feel even worse about that. (laughs) But... Mm. Sorry, dude. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next question will begin with Christine in first position. Tyrus Wong entered the U.S. as a paper son at Angel Island in 1920, and despite facing chronic and systemic racism that likely impeded his career progress, lived long enough to be honored as a Disney legend in 2001 and received the Windsor McKay Award in 2005 before passing away in late December 2016 at the age of 106. Although he was fired alongside a number of animators following the famous Disney strike of 1941, Wong's watercolor production illustrations are credited with inspiring the look of which classic Disney film? Well, that was a long question. Wait, who does this go to? This goes to Christine. It's Right. Watercolor production illustrations. I'm thinking, I mean, this is going to be some of the early. I am leaning toward either Snow White or Sleeping Beauty, because I can see where some of those, that look could be sort of watercolor based. Also, of course, art is, I think, my lowest learnedly category, and I know very little about art. So, I mean, this could be completely wrong, but I, I'll i just, with no real knowledge and just kind of thinking, you know, I'm actually going to go in a different direction here quickly. <laughs> Uh, because I this another early one that could be a little more artsy is Fantasia, and I'm going to go with Fantasia. All right, good guess. Right around the right time, and definitely a classic Disney film, but not correct. Monia? No, oh, shoot, it's me. I was hoping for another to hear another guess before you got <laughs> me. All right, so Fantasia's out. I feel like Snow White is more watercolory, especially with um. I don't know, kind of how doe-eyed um, Snow White is, so that's my guess. All right, another good guess about the right time period, but not correct, so they've narrowed it down for you, Lynn. Yeah, I'm actually thinking the most watercolor one I can think of with those gorgeous landscapes is actually Bambi, um, and that seems about the right time period for him as well, so I'm going to say Bambi. All right, and we have our uh, first entry on the scoreboard, because Bambi... Yes! Is- <laughs> Finally! <laughs> it's Evelyn. Thank you. Was Bambi nominated for an Oscar? I don't think it was. I don't think, yeah, there wasn't really much recognition for animated films then, aside from music categories, I guess. Hmm, okay. Yeah, no, when, when Bonia said doe-eyed, I mean, that was the right track, but you had to think of it. Right, that. yeah. <laughs> so close <laughs> i was actually between bambi and snow white so thank you monia for eliminating um snow white for me <laughs> and bambi did cross my mind as one of the possibilities from back then but i had no i had nothing to go on <laughs> yeah they had the the gorgeous landscapes yeah supposedly inspired by song dynasty art right it received three academy award nominations 
best sound, uh, best song, and original music score. So yeah, okay. There so yeah, like I said, outside of the music categories mostly. Now we're on Manya in the next, starting with the next question. The Hummingbirds, who released an eponymous EP in 2012, are described on their now defunct Facebook page as a quote Baha'i Nashville-based music-infused devotional group. Two of their three members are daughters of members of which soft rock band that peaked in the 1970s? And just to clarify, that that means that you they gosh, were. I may need a word later. <laughs> uh, yeah, that means that they were separate separately children of members of this group. I'm not implying that two members of the group had children with each other. Okay, so this is Hummingbirds. So Humming Space Birds is the name of this. Yes. Okay. So released one album. They're defunct. They're Baha'i Nashville devotional group. Two of their three members are daughters of a soft rock band that presumably was not as religious <laughs> and peaked in the 70s. I'm not even sure what what can you know what bands would fall under soft and which ones would fall under folk in the 70s, which is kind of a twist here, but I'm just going to guess here, Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's a, a good guess, although I, I think their peak was maybe slightly earlier in the 60s. I, sure. I, I did wonder that, but... but yeah, I mean, it's a decent yeah. guess. All right, next in the order is Lynn. I cannot name you a soft rock band from the 70s, so I'm going to go with one I do know was active in the 70s and say Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> All right, they, they were definitely active in the 70s. All right, Christine? Oh, and now I get to humiliate myself even farther with my lack of 70s music knowledge. Oh, soft rock. It, it, the 70s, 80s line is kind of blurred. Okay, this is one that I think is safely in the soft rock category, but I don't know, know if it's safely in the 70s category. And I will just throw out there Kansas. Is that soft rock? Uh, I'm not sure they were real. Uh, I mean, it's possible. But, I mean, they um, have some songs that would fall in that category, right? But anyway, there's my guess, Kansas. All right. Um, oh, no, I just, got a, I just got another idea about this, but it might be too. What was your idea? Well, my idea was the, the birds as in B-Y-R-D-S. Yeah, they were definitely a 60s peaking group. Their big hits were all in the 60s. Oh, is this like the Smiths? Or, or actually, no. That's not. Yeah, so I didn't. Now we're just all naming bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, the clues were yeah. The, but so the the group the group here to think about would be the one associated with the Baha'i faith, and especially one that had a song called Hummingbird. Not necessarily one of their biggest hits, but it did provide the inspiration for mm-hmm. the group, the name of the group their daughter is founded. And two of the members of that group have the the surnames Seals and Crofts, which would be a pretty big hint because the band looking for here is Seals and Crofts. I've never heard of this band. Huh. You probably heard some of their songs, but yeah, I guess you you are a bit young. I mean, I say that as someone who also was born after this, well after this group's heyday, but you're even yes. younger. Yes. Uh, I grew up listening to oldies radio. Uh, next question will begin with Lynn. This is the last cycle of these, so the last one with Lynn in first position. All right, you guys ask me something or no. All right. Uh, the main distinction of the 1995 martial arts comedy Three Ninjas Knuckle Up is its dual nominations at the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards for Worst Sequel and the Sequel Nobody Was Clamoring For, which are separate categories. 
However, in spite of its mediocre pedigree and less than stellar reception, its director, Shin Sang-ok, probably had a better time making it than he did during several previous projects. Why is that? Huh. I wonder if Three Ninjas Knuckle Up is the sequel to the kids' movie Three Ninjas, which I loved as a kid. Um, I don't. Is this a children's movie? I'm pretty sure it's a children's movie. So I'm going to say he had a better time making it because he was working with kids and they did not throw temper tantrums on set. I like that guess. Uh, very, yeah, very good. And I think you're probably right about the pedigree. I think it is a sequel to that movie, but yeah, not the the answer we're looking. Aww. So, uh, Christine, yeah, Christine. I'm gonna say maybe he had his own kids cast in it, and he got to direct them. Oh, another very good creative guess, but not correct. Monia. Now I now I can't stop thinking about the prison theme. <laughs> <laughs> like. Was it, he was not in prison while directing it. <laughs> That's why it was considerably better. Was it shot in a prison and he saved a bunch of money on prison <laughs> costs? See, so we're, we're too we're too close to we're too close to Southern California. We're all we're always thinking about how much does this film cost to make. <laughs> but was he okay? Let, official answer: Was he married to somebody that he met? in the earlier movie. So everything you're saying is a lot closer to the answer than you realize, I think, uh, including the, the imprisonment theme, so. Okay, should I revert back to that answer? <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like you might, if there is a prison answer that we can get, I feel like you owe this to us, you guys, like just for the, for the so, full so circle. He was in fact imprisoned earlier in his life and then was let out in order to make certain film. But the key thing here is that he, he and his, his ex-wife, Choi Eun-hee, had been successful filmmakers in South Korea. However, for the previous several years before that, they had actually been in North Korea, having been abducted at the behest of Kim Jong-il in order to make films for him. And mm. they remained there until on a trip to Vienna, they managed to sneak away and go to the U.S. Assembly, uh, US Embassy and apply for asylum, which is why they ended up in L.A., so in this case, even though he was almost certainly, you know, making a, a bad film and probably knew it was a bad film, he at least was not, you know, imprisoned and making, or he was not kidnapped and held hostage and forced to make movies by an insane dictator. So it was probably a better experience. All right. I think all three of our answers are true. You know, <laughs> we're, we're kids, we had a good time. You know, it, was, it was a good time. Yeah. Uh, was it in prison while doing it? <laughs> I don't know why all of these revolve around, but it's almost like, you know, being shut up in my apartment, not being allowed to go out. It's had some subconscious effect on me. <laughs> you're the psychologist. <laughs> yeah, you're, you diagnose what's going on. Fair points. All right. Uh, next one, we'll start with Christine in first position. Christine, just answer prison. <laughs> you just think along those lines. Terre de Homme, literally land of men, in this case men meaning like humans in French, is currently the name of an international humanitarian organization devoted to children's welfare. In 1967, it was the central theme of Montreal's Expo 67. But before that, the phrase gained currency as the title of a 1939 memoir by which man? That book was published in the U.S. under the title Wind, Sand, and Stars, which obviously was not a literal translation. Okay. 1939 memoir. 
originally published in French in 1930, 1939. I already said that. Wind, sand, and stars. So maybe a naturalist, but I don't know of any where I could go the humanitarian organization route. I am trying to think of someone in the early 1900s that either was devoted to children's welfare or to in maybe environmental nature type cause. And in prison. In of course. <laughs> I mean there's John Muir, but he was he was this, an American. This is Dreyfus, everyone. <laughs> wow. This could be somebody who was involved in World War One, maybe. Oh wow. I'm really having a hard time even coming up with a guess. I'm trying to think who was the French leader during World War One. That seems like quite a stretch. I am blanking on even possible things. I don't think Einstein ever wrote in French. But, you know, I'm I'm just going to say Albert Einstein, even though I know that's wrong, because I have to say something. All right. Yeah, decent guess. Not really, but thank you. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think, though, that this one has enough clues in there to kind of, that it can be puzzled its way through. So I think you were on the right track trying to extract something from the, the wording there. Monia? Oh, gosh, I'm up. Yep. So, so this has to be a something by a French-speaking person who was enough of a big deal to be republished in the U.S. And French is spoken in a lot of countries, including you know, many African countries, um, you know, Belgium, Switzerland, France. And don't know anybody specific that would be, you know, as Christine was saying, you know, had all their accomplishments and be ready to write a memoir in 1939. I don't know the... Uh, the background of Charles de Gaulle, but apparently he was an important guy because the Paris airport is named after him. So that's going to be my guess. Uh, you guess Charles de Gaulle? Sure. All right. Lynn? Oh, boy. I like where Christine was going with the naturalist because it does feel very, like, nature-based, you know, land of men or humans. And then wind, sand, and stars feels very something to do with nature but then my mind started to go in other directions, like Monia was saying, you know, French is spoken in, like, other places besides France it's, itself. So I started thinking, you know, does this person even have to be a white man? But then I was like, he probably was, if they chose it as the central theme of the Montreal Expo in 67. I don't see them, you know, not picking uh, or picking something from a black man. But regardless, I'm going to hope Montreal Expo was more woke. And I'm going to guess Franz Fanon. All right. Okay. That's yeah. Interesting thought there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, again, just kind of looking, thinking about you know, 20th. I think I guess with memoir, you all kind of strayed a little away from authors. I was hoping you'd you think more just along literary lines. There aren't too many really famous French authors from the first half of the 20th century. I would expect you know just about everyone to know. But in terms of wind, sand, and stars, I was hoping it would make you think of someone who you know flew through the air flew over the desert mm. about crashing an aviator who crashes in the desert and meets mm. a child from a faraway galaxy. You know, now, Lynn? Yeah, the little prince guy. What's his name? Antoine de saint exupéry That's right. Yeah. Uh, devoted to children's welfare, of course. Okay. The namesake of the St. X trivia night. Oh, okay. 
I've been playing that for several months now. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. And the last question of this round, we'll start with Monia in first position. Okay. The guinea pig, Olga de Polga, is the second most popular animal protagonist created by what children's author who passed away in 2017? Oh. Olga de Polga. <laughs> children's author passed away in 2017. So, okay, so it's an author, so it could be, it could be a cartoon guinea pig. It could be sort of a real life in photos guinea pig um or it could be a just a animal in a novel and there are so many children's authors i was thinking of the the person who drew arthur but i don't actually know who that author is so that's not going to be of much help beverly clearly works with humans typically and i'm not remembering who who writes you know the mrs Pig a wiggle bugs. Oh, you know, I have an idea, but I don't know who this author is either. I'm just, I'm going to guess, just to have a guess, um, Eric Carl. Good guess, yeah. I'm the creator of the Very Hungry Caterpillar. Yeah, very, a very good guess, but not correct. So it uh, goes to Lynn. Um, mm, my immediate thought was like the more most popular animal protagonist was the mouse. And when you give a, if you give a mouse a cookie, I don't know that author, though. So I'm just going to guess uh, Cleary, even though I'm pretty sure she's still alive. Yeah, I think she, she's in, in the, as I mentioned in previous episodes, she's in the Portland area. So I think I would have heard if she'd passed away. She's like, she's over 100, but I think she is yeah, still alive. Yeah, she's still kicking it. Yeah. I don't know if, if, if you could have Master Cookie, is that so much a children's book or a, a guide for adults on how to be passive aggressive? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was Who Moved My Cheese. Isn't that the adult passive aggressive book? <laughs> Well, that, that is, yeah, that's more of a business, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. The, the, t- the title, if you give a mouse a cookie, is sort of sinister in a way. Yeah, Who Moved My Cheese is more about accepting the system as it is and not trying to change it, which is a very cool oh. If you give a mouse a cookie is more of a story of parenting. <laughs> if, you, if you let a kid get away with this, then they're going to try to get away with this, and then you... <laughs> It's also a fair character. It's a it's a polyvalent uh, story. All right. Well, the first the first thing I thought of was Arnold Lobel, who wrote Frog and Toad, but it would then said the second most popular animal protagonist, and well, that would assume that Frog and Toad both shared the position as the first most popular. So I'm not sure about that, and I can't really remember when he passed away. I know he's, he's not living anymore, but that, that's the best I have. So Arnold LaBelle. All right. Yeah. So the um, in this case, the character and, and people may not have realized that because they, the first books with them were several decades ago. People may not realize there were still new ones being published into the late 2010s. But it's a character who uh, was recently the center of a couple of films that were highly acclaimed, one of which produced the title of Christine's previous episode of this podcast. It's, uh, oh, it's the a Paddington Bear? It's the creator of Paddington Bear, Michael, <gasps> Michael Bond. Oh, Paddington Bear. Yeah. Well, we tried, guys. We got a tenth of a point between the three of us and <laughs> over nine questions, which may break the tie at the end of this episode. So I can use that tenth of a point. Anyone's game. Yeah. So again, you, you avoid it. Well, there's only been one episode so far of the 24 where there's been a complete blank on that. And so you, uh, you did avoid that. 
All right. And yeah, since we started a little late, I'll kind of rush through the instructions on the, the next three rounds. But, you know, two of you have already been contestants here, so you basically already know how it works. So in this round, all uh, in all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories, not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of them, may relate directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories, although Lynn has already revealed hers, and Christine kind of revealed hers before the game as well. But before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for a point if your opponents miss. Sometimes, especially in later rounds, I might pass the question to you without telling you if your opponent got it wrong. In that case, just assume they got it wrong, because if they got it right, you're not playing for any point anyway, so it's pointless. As in previous episodes, there might be occasional extra bonus questions thrown in after you get stolen from. They're worth half as many points as the steal. They're basically there to give people get stolen from a chance to show off knowledge and give listeners a few more questions to enjoy. They usually won't shift the outcome of games, so just think of them as an element of chance kind of randomly sprinkled in. And the bonuses will relate to the question. They won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. So in round one, these questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as steal, one point as a specialist. They're intended to be the easiest questions of the game, although sometimes that can vary. And now for the rest of the game, points will go to both stealers, even if only one knows the answer. So is everyone ready to continue? Yes, please let the easy Bible question appear here so I can uh, steal some points from Christine in that category. Mm -hmm. All right. So since we are going in the same order, Lynn will be sitting out at first because Christine and Monia will be trying to steal from her. So, here's the question. In an eerie coincidence, the top three songs on Billboard's year-end chart for 2018 can be interpreted as equivalent to each other, since the title, word, or phrase of each is roughly synonymous with exactly as it was intended to occur. Name any one of those three songs. Okay, Monia, 2018 is like 500 years ago, so... (laughs) Okay, so you, so you and I, you and I are are working together on this one. We're working together to try to get this. Uh, All right. So, okay, synonymous with exactly as it was intended to occur. So, so that could be apropos, appropriate, meant to be thing. Of, then meant to be sounds like a good. Uh, yeah, that's good a, song. that's an ancient Taylor Swift song. So, mm-hmm. I. It's also a Florida Georgia Line song. Hmm. Why are you helping us? Because <laughs> I, I know that's not the answer. Because <laughs> that's more recent. That's not 2018. Oh, the t- title, word, or phrase of each, exactly as it was intended to occur. Something like destiny or yeah. fate. Yeah, fated, destiny, me- meant to be, like we said, um, predict- predicted, predictable, planned out. Do you remember any songs from 2018? Well, I'm sure I do, but none of none of these are really ringing a bell. I'm sure I'm sure probably two of the three were by Drake. Come at it from the point of view of like if we could name some songs, because I just don't remember 2018. Mm-mm. Were there any Ariana Grande songs that were big? Ed Sheeran. She did um. She her she had the whole uh, Thank You Next album, but I think that was um, that was more 2019. That's what I, yeah. Oh, what about Perfect? Oh, you Perfect know? by Ed Sheeran. I like that. Yeah, let's 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 try for that one. Are you? I'm, you I'm good with that. Okay, yeah, Perfect by Ed Sheeran. All right, and that is one of the 
acceptable correct answers. Very yeah, good. nice. Do you want to try for a bonus, Lynn? You want to try one name one of the others? Uh, sure. Perfect. Um, what else is from that year? There's like Girls Like You. I Like It by Cordy B. Uh, exactly as it was intended to occur. Well, let's try Meant to Be by Florida Georgia Line featuring B.B. Rexa. All right. So I did ask just for the song, not the artist, because you actually have the artist backward. It's actually by B.B. Rexa featuring Florida Georgia Line. And it was it was released in late 2017. So it did show up on the year end list for 2018. Oh. Yes. The other one, I think someone mentioned it's almost certainly going to be by Drake. It was. It's called God's Plan. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, remember, I remember when the God's Plan video came out, definitely. And the B.B. Retzik song is a really good song. I can't believe Do it. Do I get the point for the B.B. Rexa song? Yeah, no, yeah. Keep yeah. all your points. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that came out three years ago? Wow. Okay. All right. Now, Lynn and Monia to try and steal from Christine. All right. Let's see what easy Bible question we're going to get. <laughs> George Monk, later first Duke of Albemarle, was stationed in Edinburgh as governor of Scotland when, on October 20th, 1559, he gathered an army and marched them across the English border. By February 3rd, he and his troops had arrived in London. It was only then that the true purpose of his march was revealed. What was it? George Monk, later first Duke of Albemarle, was in Edinburgh, so like Scottish invasion of England, basically. Um, 1559. So this is before the Stuarts. This is possibly having to do with Mary the first. Um, I don't know. Is he trying to marry Mary? Yeah, um, were, they trying to, were they trying to get her back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that it has something to do with Mary. Because Elizabeth was like, yeah, no, I'm not, you know, none of this. Not getting married kind of thing. Wait, hold on a second. I want to, to check something. Um, I went through several different revisions of these, so I really ought to have fact-checked them, but I did not. And so I put the wrong date in that question. It should oh. be October 20th, 1659. Okay. So this is... Yeah, what's 100 years here and there? <laughs> That's a consequential. It was a typo, but a consequential one. So very, I definitely very consequential. I'm glad I okay, so this this is one of the Stuarts then, or this puts it in in or no, it, it doesn't have to be a Stuart. Hold on, no, probably one of the Stuarts. Oh boy, I mean, people were always trying to like depose the Stuarts, so you know, Charles is beheaded. I, mean, I don't know, was this the guy who came across the border to behead Charles the first? There was also like Bonnie Prince Edward to the Bonnie Prince or whoever was, I, I think, trying to overthrow Charles II. But this obviously is not him. So I, Edmonia, do you have any ideas here? Was there a Bonnie Prince Edward and a Bonnie Prince Charlie? Oh, maybe, am I thinking Bonnie Prince Charlie? That's right. That's Yeah. Like, yeah. Charlie. Yeah, there we go. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking just ge general categories could be, could be invasion. He could be asking for money. He could be trying to kill somebody. Um, I kind of like he's trying to behead Charles the first. Okay, so we're not, so you're so you're pretty sure we're not trying to steal any women because that seems also plausible given the time period. 
always plausible. Now I'm really confused about my timeline, but I, so I know Shakespeare was alive when Elizabeth, oh no, Monia disappeared. Oh, yeah. Uh Oh, hopefully she'll come back in a second. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I revised these so many times. And I somehow did not catch that typo and that feels, I feel really stupid now. <laughs> That's okay. I've had such. I, I, I clearly, I, I was showing off earlier with this is not the Stewarts, and now I'm like I'm I am still unclear if this is the Stewarts or not. So <laughs> my my English timeline is not as clear as I would like it to be. Okay, did Monia send a message of any kind? I haven't seen anything from her. Just when I thought we'd gotten back on track and everything was going to be finished on time. Yay! Okay. Welcome back. Sorry about that. All right. Okay. So we can just pick up the deliberations where you left off. I've put the corrected version of the question in chat, but it's really just one digit that needed to be corrected. Okay. Yeah. Lynn, go for it. Um, maybe, maybe let's go back to our original thoughts with Mary. Um, he's, he's coming over with the intention of, of, care, of marrying Mary. Wait, when was Mary young? I am not sure anymore. <laughs> I think this is the Stewart's which makes this incorrect if it's very, um, yeah. but I'm not sure anymore. Yeah, I was just wondering, I was wondering if this was late. Should we go back to the beheading? Oh, it's beheading Charles the first. Yeah, or, or sure. just, or just, or just, or just to, to somehow traumatize Charles the first to keep it. Okay. <laughs> yes. George to cause Monk harm. Is, to cause it, harm. It's coming over to, to cause uh, possibly fatal damage to Charles the first. All right. Is that what you're locking in? Final yeah. answer. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We, we wandered over a couple of different centuries there, partly due to my mistake. But anyway, we'll just pass this to Christine. <laughs> well, this is not an easy one that I would say. But I, so I'm having to work backwards because 1701, early 1700s is when Scotland and England were officially united under Anne before her was William and Mary. Before them was James II, who was deposed. I don't know if that would go all the way back to, to 1659, though. I think this is his true intent was to restore Charles II back to the throne. That's that's going to be my guess. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, if it's, again, English school children, I think, probably have these dates burned in their head. 1688 was the Glorious Revolution oh. that James II 1660. I didn't put that in the question directly, but I put 1659 and then February 3rd of the next year, which is 1660. So that's the year everyone should have. So every English school child will associate with the restoration of the monarchy and Charles II. So yes, what he did basically, I mean, he dissolved Parliament and he created a new Parliament, which invited Charles II back to take the throne. So essentially, restoration is what I was looking for. So very good. Nice. Well done. You got it. All I right. like our version better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ours is more drama. Well, hey, at least we were, at least I was right in the Stuarts and we were one king too early. We were just one monarch off. You yeah. helped me, though. <laughs> <laughs> you had exactly the mirror of it. He wasn't trying to overthrow the monarch. He was bringing a monarch back. To restore it. And it wasn't the first, but the second of his name. Exactly. All right. Now, Christine and Lynn to seal for Monia. Oh, what are Monia's categories? Mm-hmm. We don't know. 
Right. This is hopefully a seasonally appropriate one. Airing on December 15th, 1994, a Christmas episode from ER's first season featured an arc about Madam X, an Alzheimer's patient who repeatedly burst into song. Which real-life singer received an Emmy nomination for portraying that woman? Okay, Lynn, I'm pretty sure I know this. What is it? I think it's Rosemary Clooney. Oh, oh, I just heard Monia give up. So I think you're right. <laughs> thanks, for the, thanks for the tell. Uh, yeah, let's lock it in then. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Even when you don't, your face isn't showing, and you you don't have to keep a poker face. You still have to keep a poker mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. No, I knew it. No, I it anyway. It's okay. I, I I I think yeah. With the level of confidence I was hearing, I don't think she was going to back off from that response. Yes. Poker sigh. All right. But yes, the the twist there. Nineteen ninety four. The big star of that show, George Clooney, and so the singer related to him, his father's sister, Rosemary Clooney. Is ER one of your categories? <laughs> it may or may not be. I cannot confirm or deny. Oh, I'm glad I have Christine on my team to steal these. <laughs> it is. All right. Christine and Monia now to steal from Lynn. Aside from Do the Right Thing, what is the only film on the AFI 100 list of 2007 to be directed by a non-white filmmaker? At the time of the original AFI 100 ranking, this film had not yet been made. Okay. 2007. Okay, so wait. The, the first, what were you saying? Yeah, okay, I, I was trying to get the question right. So, original, so it's something that happened between whenever the first AFI ranking was released and then 2007. So, some, so. Yeah, I'm not really understanding this movie had yet to be. It, it means, it, well, do we know when the original AFI 100 ranking happened? I guess I guess maybe it's just a relatively new thing. Well, it's, it was some. So they revised the list in two thousand seven. And so, and a hundred is the is the what what they put out as the top hundred movies of all time, I believe. Yes. Right. So so every year they kind of move it if there's a movie that's so good that it has to displace something. I don't know that they revise it every year. Um, no, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying is that it has to be something when, that can displace when something they first have that list because whenever they first had the list somewhere between then and 2007 is when this movie was made right oh that, that's a good point it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it was made in 2007 no, no, no. it would be it, probably before 2007 likely so, so the I'm person thing about oh. filmmakers so or films really so who are some non-white filmmakers who might have made something really well the the film that popped into my head not the filmmaker but the film was crouching tiger hidden dragon okay and i feel like it was it was in there you know 2006 7 8 something like that if i'm not mistaken okay and i think that was from china so you know would have been a would have been a, a non-white filmmaker and I don't think any other, you know, black women, for example, filmmakers were getting were getting recognition at that point. Yeah. The thing that the other possibility that popped in my mind is that it kind of depends on when the first list came out. Because, yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Because my one of my personal favorites of all time. All right. What Ang Lee. Am I even saying the name right? I believe Ong, so. 
Okay. Well, we, can, we can we can ask Lynn for help with that. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't give away the answer. But, but Ang Lee did Sense and Sensibility, which if it's not in the AFI Top 100, it should be. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know if it is actually. That's from 1995. Mm-hmm. Quite a ways before 2007, and I don't know when the first list came out. Right now they're revising it every year. Yeah. So I I I really. Yeah, that's the only movie. I mean, I my movie knowledge is so minuscule that right. that's, that's the only thing I have to contribute is that it's a possibility. But you know, if, if the first AFI list didn't come out until I mean, ninety five to two thousand seven, that's not a long jump. Mm-hmm. The first list came out in the eighties or something. Right, and when the question is asking us for the film maker and not the film so it does it doesn't okay. it doesn't help us to guess a film if we don't know the filmmaker yes asking for the film what it is oh sorry what is the only film okay so i feel good about crouching tiger because of the amount of press that it got at the time for being and it's revolutionary it is before 2007 so i think we should be okay with that so i'm i i will i will Go with that. You have okay. more knowledge than me. Okay, so. yeah. And, and the other thing is I, I am not so sure that Sense and Sensibility is actually on, is on that list. I think, I feel like the remains of the day might be, but less likely Sense and Sensibility. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so we, so we feel good about that. Lock it in? You go ahead and lock it in. I'm fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> Christine is absolving herself of any culpability, <laughs> which is fair. All right, let's go for it. So you're locking in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think Lynn already knows it, so I'm not giving anything away. But do you know what the A in AFI stands for? So they're only they're only ranking American films. It is it is plausible that they would rank all films of films of all time. Yeah, but uh, the yeah. AFI one hundred. Uh, uh, our, our country, we are very solipsistic, and it is therefore American films, uh, the greatest American films of all time list. All right, fair. Although, yeah, one of the screenwriters of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Jim Seamus, is American, I'm pretty sure, a white American. So it's not that far off. But anyway, I'll pass to Lynn. I want to say a couple things. First, I'm loving both of y'all's loves for Ang Lee, both Crouching Tiger and Sense and Sensibility by the same director, and all great films. And to answer your question from earlier, Christine, it possibly to the detriment of me in the future, this list has only come out twice, the first time in 1997 mm-hmm. and then the second time in 2007. And they've they've only put out like two lists. But the correct answer here is M. Night Shyamalan's, Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense is the only other movie not to have been directed by a white filmmaker that is on the AFI 100, which I did not realize, Yogesh, until you pointed it out. All right. Yeah, it came out in 1999, so in between 97 and 2007. Very good answer. And thanks for the little tidbit for later. For later, yeah. <laughs> American films. <laughs> and, and between, yeah, 1997 is when it first. And Shyamalan is definitely one of those people where you go, how did you not get, you know, just sort of put into engineering school by your brown parents? <laughs> How did did you get film directing experience at a young age instead of applying to grad school? This is very interesting, M. Knight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of a surprising number of medical educated filmmakers, including George Miller and um, a few of them. George (laughs) Miller is very cool. I met him. 
Yeah. Okay. Monia and Lynn now to steal from Christine. Don't worry, this isn't a film question, even though it might start out sounding like one. The English language titles of Ingmar Bergman's films Through a Glass Darkly and Face to Face can both be found in the penultimate verse of the description of Agape in chapter 13 of which book of the New Testament? This chapter's previous verse about the need to put away childish things has been referenced in everything from Barack Obama's 2009 inaugural address to home improvement to movies as diverse as The Mission, Hackers, and Child's Play 3. Wow. I'm trying to... Darkly and Facebook can be found in the penultimate verse of the description of agape. What is agape? If I told you that, the question would become a lot easier, I think, so... Oh, okay. So, the only thing I'm thinking... Oh, God, I think this is Old Testament. This might be New Testament, is, mm-hmm. you know, the... Beatitudes, where it's like for every time there is a season, you know, um, okay. for everything you must, you know, turn, turn, turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's what this is making me think of because it's been referenced in everything from inaugural dress to like all these different things. So that's right. like some the people, one thing. Some the, people might think that they're referencing the song and not even realizing they're referencing the Bible. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking it's like the Beatitudes, which I believe is from Ecclesiastes, which might be Old Testament. Otherwise, there's like something like Jesus says extensively in a sermon in Matthew that gets quoted a bunch as well. Yeah, I was wondering about Matthew too. Hmm. I, I like your I like your initial instinct. Um, Yogesh, what is what does it mean the English language? Does that mean that the w- literal words through a glass darkly and face to face those English words are in the verse of that yes. book. Is that in correct? The, in the King James Version, yes. Both oh. of those phrases appear in that verse. I mean, description of agape, I don't know if that's like <laughs> the end times, like in Revelations, or it might be, you know, the resurrection, which happens in the, the four Gospels up front in the New Testament. It, it might just mean a revelation, honestly. Mm. Because it like, the English word would mean is is meaning standing in awe and i think revelations is the only um would be the only bible book name that would sound anything like that okay i don't mind going with revelations okay all right lock it in locking it in final answer revelation sorry what what was that you were locking in revelations you got cut off again revelations Okay, yeah. If that were the correct answer, I might have to be picky about the whole revelation versus revelations thing, because in Quiz Bowl especially, they really seem to only want to accept revelation, but neither of those is the correct answer, so I'm not going to have to do that. Dang. All right. Okay. So, y'all, this was interesting, hearing y'all talk through these things. (laughs) Because the thing about the time, for every time there is a season, that is from Ecclesiastes, Lynn. That's in the Mm -hmm. Old Testament. That's what I thought. Beatitudes, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm, it's, that's Matthew. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is from Matthew chapter 5. Let me go back to this question. So, a little story time. Imagine little 10-year-old Christine in church. There was this program we had for, uh, the church had for girls that involved a lot of service projects and Bible memory, that sort of thing. And... Part of the, we had a little graduation for it, wore white dresses, 
had to stand in front of the church and quote some things that we had memorized. And my quote that I had had to do was the entire love chapter, which is what agape means, which which included these verses. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. And that was, so my little thing was to recite the entire first Corinthians 13. And so that is the answer. Oh my goodness. Nice. So nice. That, that was, that was me just sitting there thinking, I hope you come up with this. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Barack Obama's quoting Corinthians. <laughs> yeah. I, I went to a Christian school until the age of nine. One of my favorite things about having Christy on this podcast is watching other people flounder with Bible questions and realizing that uh, those of us who, who grew up learning about it are kind of in a minority, <laughs> even among others. But um, no, not in the I grew up going to church. I apparently just don't remember things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the question actually about Ecclesiastes was in fact asked on Christine's previous episode of this podcast. Mm, right, it was. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd been around for that, you would have done well. But all right, uh, Christine and Lynn now to steal from Monia. All right. Give us something Christine knows about ER. (laughs) (laughs) What radio station in Fremont, California, is owned by Olone or Olone College and used to train and teach students in their broadcasting department? Those students are probably not required to wear an ancient eye cosmetic whose use in the Middle East dates back thousands of years, although I suppose they can if they want to. Oh, is this um, K-O-H-L maybe, Lynn? Oh, I love that. I love that. That's funny. Okay, let's go with that. I'm not even going to read the rest. Yeah, let's go with that. Log it in. K-O-H-L. Yeah, final answer. All right. Very good. Good deduction there. I'll give Monia a bonus based vaguely on the idea of Cole. So Herbert Cole, who served as CEO of his family's namesake department store chain, also represented which state in the U.S. Senate from 1989 to 2013? The previous holder of his seat was Senator William Proxmire, whose Golden Fleece Awards were meant to combat wasteful government spending, but turned out to be the bane of many social psychologists. Oh, wow. All right, let me take a look at this. You just need to name a state, so one in 50. Yeah, yeah, let's see. Oh, so yeah, this is recent. Uh, He was running coals and he was a senator? I mean, presumably he had to step down from one in order to become the other, but yes, at times in his life he did have both of those positions. And you can't you can't really go off of where Coles is located much because it's kind of everywhere now. So I'm going to just guess Missouri. All right. So it might have helped to know the previous holder of the seat before Proxmire was Joseph McCarthy. Oh. Yeah. It was in Wisconsin. Okay. All right. Now Christine and Monia to steal from Lynn. In good two- job, Christine. That was a good poll. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it really helped because I knew that the the cosmetic was called coal. So. Right. Fantastic. That's basically what it was testing. No, I didn't realistically expect anyone to know about the radio station. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2005, the ruling junta of a certain nation abruptly and without warning moved its capital to a site near Pianmana, now known as Nepida, N-A-Y-P-Y-I-D-A-W. It is unclear why this site was selected, but one possibility floated on Wikipedia is that Pianmana holds special status because during World War II, it served as the center of operations for what general considered the father of that nation? 
that Nebida is now the capital of. This man was assassinated under unclear circumstances in July 1947, about six months before his nation officially gained independence, and is today less famous in the West than his daughter. Manya, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I learned all the world capitals, and then I haven't been practicing them, and so I forgot them. <laughs> I need to process this whole question. So a certain nation moved its capital to a site in 2005, now known as Napida. It's basically what, Napida is the capital of what country? That's all it comes down to. And it's one of the little ones. It's one of the little ones. And it's pretty sure it's Asia, not Africa. Right, and I know most of my Asian ones, this is tricky. Or it could be, you know, one of the Pacific Islands. Right, so I, I think that's more likely. Which is uh, the so spot. P, so, so P and Mana hold special status because during World War II, it served as the center of operation for what general who's considered the father of that nation. So we could be looking at, like, little bitty nations like Kiribati, Kiribati or... Tonga, or... What about Pitcairn? That's not a country. So, it's only a territory. And today's... The general is considered the father of that nation, and he's less famous in the West than his daughter? Oh, now that's interesting. So, I'm kind of wondering who this famous daughter is, who can, you know, help us, rather than making a blind guess? Yeah. So, you know, Rihanna is somebody from, you know, famous from an island... Uh, who else? There's a lot of new young singers, but they're from Albania. They're not from a, you know, Pacific island. Who else yeah. would be from a Pacific island? I have no idea. I don't usually know where people are from. Mm-hmm. So he's assassinated under unclear circumstances in July 1947. So his, so his daughter's. Uh, so his, I mean, his daughter's not somebody young. His daughter's going to be somebody in their, in her 70s. Or, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I just, I just realized this is somebody. This is somebody who's older. Yeah. All right. So it's not, it's not Fiji. It's not Papua New Guinea. Is it? Is it Vanuatu? Is it Nauru? I definitely should know this one. Yeah. You'd have to pick one. I feel like maybe it's one of the ones starting with a B in um, East Asia, like small countries. It's one of the ones I always forget. Okay. Or it could be. Or I'm, I'm sorry, it could be in Africa. No, this doesn't sound like Afri- this doesn't sound African to me. This is one of the ones that I took the longest to learn, and then it was obviously one of the first ones I forgot. I know. What are the What are the East Asian countries that start with B, or there or Pacific Island countries that start with B? Burundi is in Africa. Right. Bhutan. Oh, actually, that's. You want to say Bhutan? I feel like that's not terrible. So I'm wondering who this Bhutanese daughter is. Um, and here's, here's my question. So, so is it possible, is it possible that the name of this capital just changed? I don't know. And that we've known it as something different? No, I, I recognize Napida. I recognize okay. that as one of the capitals that I learned. I just can't remember which country to plug it into. Okay. So this is, this is definitely a capital that's been around at least all of this year. Great. So. Okay got to pick a country and go with it I, per- I personally felt stronger with one of the one of the smaller re- the really small pacific islands but if you're feeling no i, I i'm not i'm not going to argue with you but I, I would i just don't know i don't i can't ever really remember the names of this mm-hmm. island. 
Well, I, I certainly agree it sounds Asian, and if, if you're if you're remembering a B name, then Bhutan is as good as any. Okay, let's just go with Bhutan. Yeah. Do you want a name of? A, so you're looking for a name of a person. Do you want to? Do you think their name was Bhutan? No. <laughs> I mean. No, I just don't know. Not the not the least reasonable thing, but um. Okay, I'll just enter. I, I happen to know the royal family of Bhutan is what their name is because three of them lived in my dorm in college. So oh my God. <laughs> just substitute in an answer of Wang Chuk, which is probably the best Bhutan answer or related answer, and treat that as your answer, uh, and then I'll pass it to Lynn. Christine, you were you were on the right track. It was not as small as you thought it was. Oh, we we're thinking of a B nation. It's not Bhutan. It's Burma. I re- I also known as Myanmar. Oh. But the answer he's looking for is a general. Um, his famous daughter is Aung San Suu Kyi. I actually don't know his name, so I'm just going to give Suu Kyi and hope that's enough. You're really going to slap your forehead after this. His name was Aung San. Aung San. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. So I spent that whole question trying to come up with the country and totally misread that they were looking for the general. I feel yeah, very yeah. ridiculous. Okay, really looked. I, I thought that too. Oh, so. man. That's very frustrating. But it would, I wouldn't have gotten it anyway. On both our ends, because I was like, oh, yeah. Well, I knew what country it was. Yeah, you came You came about as close as it's possible for someone to come and not get that right. And not get it right. Yep. Yep. So what country was it? Burma. Myanmar or Burma was the B you were thinking. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, I won't. I won't wade into the debate about which is a true name of the nation. I'll just go on to the next one, Lin and Monia. Us to, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, Lin and Monia to steal from Christine. The heavily fictionalized 1947 Hollywood biopic film *Song of Love*, starring Katherine Hepburn, tells the story of a love triangle involving Johannes Brahms and what other male composer? In the *The Jacket* episode of Seinfeld, which listeners may recall me discussing in episode nine of this podcast, Jerry responds to learning that George has master of the house from Les Mis stuck in his head by detailing the sad fate of this composer, saying, he went crazy from one note. He couldn't get it out of his head. I think it was an A. He kept repeating it over and over again. He had to be institutionalized. So I'm pretty sure the a composer who goes crazy from getting stuck with one note in his head is Maurice Ravel who wrote Bolero I think that's the famous story is like he goes crazy from just like just like you know play this thing over and over again so I but Brahms is not French and Ravel is so I don't know why I don't think I don't think that's as much of an issue because the the composers would would travel all over right yeah and I mean Les Mis is French so my my guess would be Maurice Ravel or just Ravel. That is his last name, not Maurice. <laughs> uh, are you are you okay with that? Unless I'm okay. You have... with, I'm okay. Okay. With Ravel, lock it in. Yeah, I think I think you may be thinking, Lynn, of the fate of people who have to listen to Bolero. Uh, <laughs> right. I was yeah. I was thinking if if you're you know if you're worried about things getting stuck in your head, then please don't compose Bolero. <laughs> All right, uh, Christine. So Ravel lived a lot after Brahms. So Brahms was, this is what I think is right. Brahms was a close friend of a composer and his wife. And there were rumors about him being involved with this composer's wife. 
and she was also a composer and performer in her own right. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I do know that the composer, the husband in the situation, did have mental health issues. So I'm thinking that this is referring to Robert Schumann. So I'm not completely confident in it, but I, I don't have any better answer. So I'm going to say Robert Schumann. All right. Yeah. So uh, in the film, Catherine Hepburn portrayed Clara Weick Schumann, his wife. Robert Schumann is the correct answer. Nice. Well done. Good job, Christine. Didn't Ravel go crazy, though? I think that's a thing. Yeah. Composer composer that went into madness is not something that narrows down the trivia at all. Right. <laughs> that did yeah. not happen. Christine and Lynn now to steal from Monia. Last question of this round before the questions go up in difficulty. How do you talk to an angel with lead vocals by Jamie Walters and credited to The Heights reach number one on the U.S. pop charts in 1992? This made The Heights the fourth act to hit number one with what type of song? Previous artists who topped the U.S. charts with songs in this category include Rhythm Heritage, John Sebastian, and Jan Hammer. How do you talk to an angel? Well, I've, now I've got this song stuck in my head, speaking of <laughs> stuck in your head. <laughs> so what kind of song is it? I mean, the first thing, in my, first thing I thought of was a power ballad, but there'd be a lot more of those. Is so, it a gospel song? No. Okay. What type of song? Does it like just repeat like one chorus over and over again? Or what's how, what's unique about this song? Oh, goodness. Why uh, trying to catch a falling star? I mean, that's, I don't know, using a, the um, device of a rhetorical question. I don't know. <laughs> Songs that have titles of rhetorical questions. Um, that's not like a type of song. Well, I wouldn't say. I mean, that's like a type of title of a song, but I wouldn't call that. I don't. I mean, we can go with that. I, I don't know that that's a type of song. Power ballad is better than that, but there have been many more. I'm sure there have been many more number one power ballads before 1992. More than. Yeah. Let's go with Let's go with question then. In that case. Okay. Sure. I'll do that. So, in the form songs that are phrased in the form of a question. <laughs> That would be uh, appropriate for a uh, quizzers getting very meta, but uh, unfortunately, uh, not the correct answer. Monia? Okay, so so I do remember the song as well. I think that either either the song, you know, potentially was from a TV show like Party of Five, or the band was fictional and coming out of the show. Um, but you're calling it the type of song. Okay, right. I'm just, category. That doesn't necessarily mean it's like musicology related. That doesn't mean it's musicology related. Isn't it all musicology related? <laughs> um, I don't think there was anything stylistically different. You know, it's it's a power ballad. I don't think it. I don't think it's sung in you know a round or anything like that. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go as a song that is a. Uh, that's from a soundtrack, from a TV soundtrack. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think, so I think, I mean, you kind of identified the two things that stood out about it, that it was by a fictional band and that it was the theme from a TV show, which was also called The Heights. Um, yeah. But I think, the, the yeah, the previous fictional band to have a number one was probably the Archies back in the 60s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rhythm Heritage did the theme from SWAT, John Sebastian, Welcome Back, Cotter, Jan Hammer, Miami Vice. So this was the fourth number one song to be the theme from a television series. So I'll accept Monia's answer. Yeah. Nice. Good job, good job. 
All right, and it looks like at the end of that round, we're going to have a score 6.1 Lynn, 9.0 Christine, 3.0 Monia. So let's just keep rolling on into the next round. I could uh, have seven if I had gotten the right half of, should have remembered Asian surnames come first. God damn it. <laughs> All right. The only somewhat hard round, four points for a steal, three points for a specialist, two points for a bonus. And here's Christine and Monia's question to steal from Lynn. To fans of The X-Files, the name Clyde Bruckman instantly evokes the Darren Morgan scripted 1995 episode, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, featuring an Emmy-winning guest turn by Peter Boyle as an enigmatic man who can foresee how people will die. Less well-known is where Morgan got that name. The original Clyde Bruckman, who committed suicide in 1955, was the co-director of what now-classic silent film? It is the highest-ranked movie on the 2007 AFI 100 list that had not appeared at all on the 1997 list. Okay. So a silent film? Wait, it's a silent film that they chose later. Yeah. All right, what are... So it's, so it's are, not the artist. Because <laughs> it has to be before 1955, because that's... Right, exactly. Died. Exactly. So, what are some great silent films? Oh, goodness. Just. Like, were there any Oscar winning silent films? Let's see. I'll look at this again. What is it? I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good guess for this. A newly chosen silent film. It's like they went back and decided we should have included this. Right. Um, what about the, the original originals of Dracula Frankenstein? Are they silent? Maybe original horror? Maybe. That's a guess. I mean, I, sure. Pick one of those, like Dracula. Yeah, well, especially because it's an it's an X-Files thing, and the character is how people will die. So, you know, him being sort of like something involved in something more macabre seems okay. to fit better. Sure, why not? So which, which one do you think? Uh, Dracula. Okay. Uh, right. Dracula. Dracula. All right, yeah, uh, not a bad guess. Although the the classic Dracula with Bela Lugosi is highly remembered for Bela Lugosi's you know Hungarian accent, which wouldn't have really come across in a silent film. So it, it was a sound film. Good guess, Lynn. Well, I had to watch my fair share of silent film duds in the process of oh, for listeners. And the reason why I picked this category is because in 2020 during quarantine, I decided to watch through the AFI 100 list without necessarily repeating movies I'd already watched before. So I've, I've watched through 65 movies on both the 1997 and 2007 lists over the course of this year. The three silent movies that come to mind are The Jazz Singer, um, Sunset, which I, I know is new to the list, and I actually did not get around to watching that silent film, and Buster Keaton's The General. Mm. Of those three... The general I know is new to the list. Of those three, the general I think is the highest ranked silent movie. I thought that was a Buster Keaton feature, though. I didn't realize there was a co-director on it. Mm, so I guess my <sighs> sunset, the jazz singer, the general. Um, but going with, I'm just going to go with that last clue, though. It's the highest ranked movie. Oh, that did not appear at all on the 19th. Okay, I'm going to go with the general. Final answer. Lucky in the general? All right, yeah. So, I mean, the jazz singer, I think, would probably count as a sound film since that's what it's famous for, having sound. 
It was mostly silent, but did have certain synchronized sound sequences. The other movie we were trying to think of was called Sunrise, actually. Sunrise, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that is a silent film and generally considered a masterpiece, but Clyde Bruckman was more of a master of silent comedy. So the movie he co-directed was, in fact, The General. Very good. Oh, thank God. (laughs) And that's a fun movie, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the ones that, you know, has probably aged the best of that era, if you overlook its hero being on the Confederate side in the Civil War. Right. The jazz singer, lots of lots of blackface, which I was not expecting as I was watching this movie. And, and suddenly you get hit with it and you're like, oh, well, this doesn't need to be here. Yeah. All right. Lynn and Monia now to steal from Christine. A deacon who denounced his accusers and was promptly stoned to death by a mob. What first Christian martyr has his feast day celebrated on December 26th in the Roman Catholic Church and December 27th in many branches of Eastern Christianity? A deacon who denounced his accusers and was promptly stoned to death by a mob. The first Christian martyr. I should know this. Um, Is this like St. Bartholomew's Day? Oh, no, that's like in February, right? Um, Feast day December 26th. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. (laughs) That's close to Christmas. I've actually heard something about Stephen being... There is a Saint Stephen. Yes, I don't I'm trying to remember the rest of the song. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. Da, 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 da. For the frost was even, so it's winter time. It's a Christmas song. Look, the only saint I know is Saint Sebastian, who has become a gay icon and is now like the queer saint. So I hope we get a Saint Sebastian question somewhere in the set. But I don't. I know it's not him. I'm okay with going with Stephen. I, I I really don't know on this. Yeah, we, we know we've know he, we we know that he's got a feast. We know it's in the winter, it's possibly Christmas related. Yeah, let's go for it. Steven, locking it in. <laughs> I really wish that Christine had been on camera so I could have seen her face when you basically blundered into that answer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I was, I tilted my camera up. I have no poker face. And I'm sitting there, the song's going through my head. And I'm like, please don't let them start singing the song. They're starting to sing the song. <laughs> Well done, Monia. Well done. Oh, thank you. That is exactly why I build in these additional routes in so people can get it from lateral knowledge. So very good. Yeah, but there isn't a question on St. Sebastian, but one question that virtually every quizzer will get wrong is if you ask them how, according to the traditional account, did St. Sebastian die? 99.99999% of people think that he died from arrows. Yeah. He was pierced by arrows. He was nursed back to health by another saint, I think Saint Irene. And then he kept preaching, so he was eventually beaten to death with clubs. Oh, well, he's he's got that famous like pose with the arrows going into his torso. Right, yes, which certainly didn't hurt him becoming a gay icon. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Christine and Lynn to steal from Monia. A sample from a 1937 recording called The Aeroplane Ride, collected by ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax in rural Kentucky, begins the album version of what 1995 song written by Eric Bazilian of the Hooters? As a single, this song peaked at number four on the U.S. charts and was nominated for the 1996 Record of the Year Grammy. And here's a hint which may only be useful to me if I were in your place. may not be useful to you, but I'll give it anyway. A 2014 paper published in Journal of Experimental Psychology by social psychologists Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder, which showed that people tend to underestimate the positive utility of talking to strangers while commuting, always makes me think of this song. Mm. 
Yeah. Yogesh, I just I just have to say that I know who Eric Bazilian is and that that is all. That you 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 went you went correctly deep into my into my domain. <laughs> all right. Good to hear. Okay, so a 2014 paper published in Journal of Psychology showed that people tend to underestimate the positive utility of talking to strangers while commuting. Makes me think of the song. So is there something like strangers on a train or like that's a min- something train to Georgia? You know, I mean, obviously it's not that, but like some song from the mid-90s about like the subway or the train or like the L or something like that. So it's a song written by this guy, but we don't know who actually recorded it. So, right. 1996. I was listening to country back then. <laughs> so that's not helpful. Or probably not helpful. Yeah, I got nothing here unless there's Make a song me. called Strangers on a Train. No, uh, what was, oh, yeah, this is, this is, these are my college, this is my college years. I should know this. I should know what songs were popular back then, but it's been a long time ago also. I'm at your discretion here. Uh, yeah, I was thinking, oh, so maybe like a story, it's a story song of talking to someone on a bus. You never know how you're going to touch someone's life. I don't know. <laughs> um, you got a fast car. I got a ticket to get us out of here. You know, that's. <laughs> the real pain of this particular game is that there is no passing. You have to come up with some sort of answer. <laughs> That is the real torture, is having to come up with something. Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. Okay, sure. I don't think it's right time. And that's not right. I'm I'm just throwing out a name. Fast Car. Final answer. Yeah, sure. All right, they locked in Fast Car. All right, Monia? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make... Uh, (laughs) I was right. (laughs) Something about that. Yes, yeah, so Eric Bazilian is Joan Osborne's main musical collaborator, and I've seen him on stage multiple times, I think. The, yeah, the Airplane Ride song, I'd forgotten about that, but it sounds like this little like high-pitched old lady singing. And I don't know all the words. I wish I knew all the words, but it's... And then it ends with... It's something like, God's gonna fly in his little airplane. And then they just launch into ba da 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 da. Oh, is this the What If God Was One of Us? Yeah. <laughs> is that all the way back in the 90s? Mm hmm. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the Epley Schroeder study, I always think of it as the strangers on a bus experiment, which immediately makes me think just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. So oh, one- what if God was one of us? Oh, nice. All right, Christine and Monia now to steal from Lynn. Perhaps first noticed in a minor but significant part as Blade's mother in Blade, she was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for her breakthrough role in Love and Basketball. More recently, she's been heard as Cleveland Brown's wife on The Cleveland Show and Family Guy and seen in Replay, an episode of The Twilight Zone revival dealing with police violence. She was also nominated for a Tony as Benita in the 2004 Broadway revival of A Raisin in the Sun. Now, if you're thinking of the same person I am, which Middle Eastern country should you also be thinking of? This is one of my my categories? Yes. (laughs) Which one? Okay, here's the question. Um, I was just thinking about going to see a drive-in screening of Love and Basketball because I've never seen it. 
so yeah, so Love and Basketball, I think, was in like 90s or early 2000s. And then, you know, this woman would be would have been in her 20s then. So, you know, like mid 40s now, I would suppose. Okay. And and someone who okay, someone who's also a stage actress. So so Viola Davis is probably too old. Wondering if you're thinking of the same person I am, which Middle Eastern country should you also be thinking of? Okay, so yeah, I don't think it's Kerry Washington because I've I've seen the poster and it wasn't. I don't think she's somebody who is a huge huge star now. No, it doesn't sound like it from her resume, or at least the parts right. of the resume that's given us. Well, he could he could be he could be leaving somebody out, but I know I've now seen the poster at least once and it's. Um, so some, yeah, it's it's not some it's not somebody who's you know sort of a household name I believe. Right. Has the, a similar first first or last name to a Middle Eastern country or a city in a Middle Eastern country. Okay. So Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, Iraq, Oman, Yemen. Oh, Sanaa Latan. I'm sorry. Sanaa capital of Yemen it might be Sanaa Latan um she's she's a black actress who's kind of active but is doesn't have that same status like that uh, that sounds like a terrific answer and so that then that's the capital of Yemen right yeah yeah I I feel pretty good about that because she's yeah she's 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 worked steadily but she's never you know headlining you know yeah big movies or something like that, like, you know, like Halle Berry or someone like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel good about it. Yemen. Locking it in. All right, you're locking in. So what's, which, you're locking in which country? Yemen. Yemen. Yemen, all right. Yeah, you, you puzzled your way through that exactly correctly. Good yes. Nice. Well done. Um, I would not have gotten it, so good job. Did me right. steal. Did saying Yemen help you at all? Yes, I think, I think so. <laughs> Very much so. I made some small contribution there. All right, I'll, I'll turn my camera off. In case, I don't want, in, in case like that, my face could potentially give something away. So I'll just take away that risk. Um, and I'll, I'll quickly give Lynn a bonus. So this is tangentially related. So in that 2004 Broadway revival, Raisin in the Sun, also featured Audra McDonald, Felicia Rashad, and which actor in the lead role of Walter Younger? I can accept his real name or any professional alias that he has used at any point. Um, is it also thematically, like he has some Middle Eastern capital city in his name no it's just tangential oh, oh completely tangential okay carrie washington though since her surname is also a capital city yeah that's true a reason the sun i think they're in their like 30s in that movie or not sorry in that play in chicago like it's family so in 2004 um, well let's go with the other washington because i know he's done stage work on fences so denzel all right, yeah, so the, the key here to someone who has used many different names over the course of his career, 2004 marks the Broadway debut of Sean Combs, as he was known at the time. Uh, P. Oh, Diddy. I figured it out right before you said his name, yeah, yeah. Also, or course, any professional, yeah. Did he, get, did he get a Tony nomination? He did not, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, He's Lynn funny and when he plays himself. Yeah, I think that was more of a commercially driven decision than an artistically driven one. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lynn and Monia to steal from Christine. Famed chemist Rosalind Franklin was educated at St. Paul's Girls' School in West London, where her extremely poor singing led the school's music director to inquire about whether she might have hearing loss. She didn't, by the way. 
just a really good singer. So who was that solicitous educator who is today remembered primarily as a composer? Okay. So this is an English composer we're looking for here. Rosalind Franklin, she was active when? Like 1940s or something? So this is probably a composer who is like... Yeah, there's a, there's a school named after Rosalind Franklin, so I would think, you know, I don't really know her her time trajectory here, but I would think at least famous by the 60s. Right. So this, so, so we're looking like 20th century, early half 20th century um, so. composer, classical music composer. I mean, who are the English composers? It's like... The, um, the big ones would be, you know, Benjamin Britten, uh, Ray yeah. Fon Williams. El, uh, Elgar is British, right? Yeah, Elgar's British, but he's okay. earlier, I think. There's like Humperdinck is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind going with someone like Ray Fon Williams. For some reason, I and I've, I have very little basis for this, but I was I was thinking of Britten as more likely... I really want to see Christine's face right now. What's going on with her face? <laughs> She's hiding her face. Oh, no. She is. She is. Um, for some illogical reason, I'm thinking Britain might have been more likely to be a music educator. Okay. Once again, I have no basis for this. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't know either way. So I'm okay doing doing that. Okay. All right. Okay. Luck, luck and in place. Benjamin Britain, final. All right, yeah, you were probably thinking of his Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. That might be what you think. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good guess. He was definitely a 20th century British uh, English composer, but uh, Christine? Oh, I get another shot at this. <laughs> okay, I'm excited because I was absolutely certain that Benjamin Britten was the correct answer. <laughs> oh, okay, well, we feel better. Thanks for eliminating that possibility. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking out. Uh, Oh, I just, I'm wondering how obscure you're going to go, Yogesh, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, I'm thinking of choral composers that aren't really household names, or is this a Vaughn Williams thing, which is my other potential guess. I mean, there's people like Eric Whitaker who composed choral works. Christine, you could have... You could have stuck with Jane Austen. <laughs> no, it was going to be classical music regardless. <laughs> Wait, isn't, am I mixing you up with someone? Isn't Eric Whitaker modern as in composing right now? Well, hey, thanks, Lottman, for ruling that out for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, a, I'm a giver. What can I say? Yeah, you're right. You're right. His music is more modern. I don't, I don't even know if he's still alive or not. I'm, choral music is really not my thing. I'm not a singer. So, um, you know, I'm just going to go with Vaughn Williams. That's a okay. lot. Yeah, that's another good guess. I mean, typically when people think of early 20th century British composers, or 20th century British composers, those are definitely probably the two biggest names because they certainly sound very British. And one of them literally is Britain. But of course, there was a composer who was 100% English, but people don't remember that because his name doesn't sound very English. And he, he composed a St. Paul Suite, actually. He did a lot of orchestral music, the St. Paul Suite, named after his employer. And of course, while working there, his most famous work he composed, which was called The Planets. Ah! Oh. Yeah. Oh. Goodness. Oh, Holst. Gustav. Uh, Gustav. Our boy Gustav Holst. Yes. Okay. All right. 
And all right, now this is a bit Can of a long. Imagine question. getting shade from Gustav Holtz. <laughs> just like, are you deaf? Like that's how much Gustav Holtz did not believe in Rosalind Franklin's singing abilities. What's really sad is my daughter wrote a report last year about Rosalind Franklin that that whole thing about her singing didn't come up that I'm aware of. All right. So this is kind of a long question for Christine and Lynn to steal from Monia. Okay, so circa 2013, I went on a date with a woman who mentioned during our conversation that it was too bad that a certain actress hadn't had any prominent role since the turn of the 20th century. I immediately pointed out that this actress had just been nominated for an Emmy for her role on Mad Men, that she'd also been a regular on ER, and that she voiced a character on an animated series with a strong cult following. Now, lest you think that I only get hypercorrective around women, in 2019, a male friend also lamented to me that this actress's career was dead, only for me to point out that she was in the highest grossing film of the year, as well as the film that had just been awarded the Best Picture Oscar. Oh, and she'd recently landed a critically acclaimed role that, it turns out, would bring her a 2020 Emmy nomination for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. So name this performer who, despite her obvious talent and beauty, somehow always slips under the radar. This has to be Catherine O'Hara, right? Is she an ER? No. Uh, that's, that's who outstanding, oh, oh nomination, okay, I, I thought the 2020 Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series went to Catherine O'Hara, which I may be mistaken, but it is something like that. Um, okay, so in 2019, male friend lamented this actress's career was dead, only for me to point out that she was in the highest grossing film of the year, so this is what, like, Avengers Infinity War, I mean, that's a big cast there. And had just been awarded, as well as the film that had just been awarded the Best Picture Oscar. So that's Green Book for 2019. Um, unless Yogesh means, oh, unless this is Shape of Water, as in the Oscar was given to Shape of Water in the year 2019, not necessarily the 2019 Best Picture Oscar winner. So this is probably someone white, right? Where This is because I'm, I'm trying to think. Being on Mad Men. Yeah, especially having been on Mad Men. I mean, who was on Mad Men? January Jones? Eh, I mean, she isn't from, like, turn of the 20th century. Sally Field is in Shape of Water. And Green Book is... I don't remember who plays the wife of Viggo Mortensen's character. Um, Mara Tierney was in ER. She's someone that's kind of under the radar, but... Oh, who... Yeah, do you know ER? Who are the regulars? The regular... It'd be multiple it, actresses from ER. I mean, Juliana Margulies, obviously. I mean, that, but she's, right. she wouldn't fall into any of these categories. Juliana Margulies, unfortunately, is not in any Marvel, Star Wars, or Best Picture Oscar winners of the most recent few years. Oh, no, see, so yeah, I, she was only in ER the first five seasons, anyway. Mara Tierney, here was, I cannot remember the name of, there was an actress, an Asian actress, that I can't, I'm not sure, oh, I can't remember her name, but I can't think of that she would have been in Mad Men either. Right, I mean, yeah. Any nominations for Mad Men, I mean, Christina Hendricks, who... Elizabeth Olsen, Christina Hendricks, January Jones, are, are all the people I'm thinking of for Mad Men. Um, she was also nominated for a 2020 nomination for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. So this is not like Julia Louis-Dreyfus. This is not... I don't know. I don't even know. I didn't follow the Emmys. This yeah, year. it's like Schitt's Creek basically swept this 
this year. Catherine O'Hara is the the woman from Schitt's Creek, but obviously it's not her. Um, she voiced the character on an animated series with a strong cult following. Probably like Bojack. She's probably the voice of someone on Bojack Horseman. Um, she was in the highest grossing film of the year in 2019. And I mean, this is Avengers Affinity War, which like everyone and their mothers was in <laughs> the Avengers movies. But, um, oh no, this is Avengers Endgame. Excuse me. Sorry. 2020, nothing has come out. Sorry. So, so highest grossing film in 2019, Avengers Endgame, which again, everyone and their mothers was in. We have like Gwyneth Paltrow is in there. Um, oh, maybe she plays like Peggy, the, uh, Chris Evans's. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's dancing with Peggy at the end there. Um, Holy Smolders is not in it. Um, Brie Larson is in Avengers Endgame. Who the hell else is a little bit older and was also in Avengers Endgame? The person who plays Clint Barton's wife is a possibility. There's Zoe Saldana. That's definitely not her. Is Sally Field somehow in Avengers Endgame? I don't think so. She doesn't. I mean, she hasn't been lead actress in a comedy series lately, has she? No, yeah, you're right. Um, who is this person? Can you think of any other female actresses on ER? Oh, it's, I mean, there were people who came through briefly, but I can't think. I'm, I'm trying thinking through. Matt, I've watched Mad Men more recently than ER, and this was on um, Mad Men. Yeah, I mean. It, it would have been maybe someone who got like a nomination for a guest role or something like who would have played Anna Draper on Mad Men or um, wish her more tyranny didn't because I mean she seems like one of those people who would just pop up in different places. What does she look like? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't recognize that name, but both you know, both Avengers Endgame could just have like I mean that that cast is like goes on for forever. So it's possible that she's like a bit role in it. And but who what film won the won the um It's either Shape of Water or Green Book. Oh no 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 he's talking about Green Book, sorry. No, no, no yeah, it had just been yeah, so it's absolutely Green Book. So who is in Green Book? Um, Green Book is like Vigo Mortensen, it's Mahershala Ali. Right. But um there's someone who plays the wife of Vigo Mortensen. It might be her. Okay. You know, I'm just gonna go with Maura Tierney. All right, let's do that. Locking it in. Locking it in. All right, yeah, Maura Tierney, yeah, very talented, very beautiful. Does often slip under the radar. People didn't even notice her work on The Affair, which was one of the best TV performances of the past decade. Uh huh. Yes, it was. <laughs> not the correct answer, so I'll pass to Monia. It was a good answer, though. <laughs> Very good answer. Yeah, but then um, I realized it wasn't more because because then Yogesh would have pointed out her work on the affair. Um, so so here's the thing. So I think I think the character of Kim on ER, who was Carter's girlfriend, wife, baby mama, I think that was Thandie Newton and not Zoe Saldana. And I was confused because I think Zoe Saldana is in the Guardians of the Galaxy, which would put her in the Avengers, uh, which I have not 
seen yet because I insist on seeing it on a Endgame on a big screen. Um, but never be a big screen again, Manya. I know. So sad. <laughs> that was I'd made that decision before they came out with we're just going to obliterate the entire you know sit down and go to a theater film industry. So I think it's I think it's possible that she was in Green Book and I you know I just don't remember because you know because she was a wife and she got two minutes of screen time. Hence the flying under the radar. Um, I don't know what the comedy actress in a series was because as we talked about everything was swept by Shit's Creek. But I feel pretty good about her possibly having been in the rest of these roles. I'm going to guess Sandy. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, urging you to remember that there is a very long lead time between when these episodes are recorded and when they are released. Between recording and release, Ms. Newton went public with the fact that she prefers the name Tandiway Newton rather than Tandy Newton. However, at the time of recording, this was not public knowledge. Yeah, I think she has been rolling up a lot of Emmy nominations for her role on Westworld, and I think even one at least once. But yeah, you, uh, I mean, I think Lynn and or Christine, you know, but it's a good thing I have my camera off because you both said at different times. One of you said the wife from Green Book. One of you said Clint Barton's wife in Avengers. I knew it was her. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it's amazing how many roles, awards, everything this woman gets, and yet every time people are like, she hasn't done anything since Freaks and Geeks. It's so sad. Oh, Linda Cardinelli? Linda Cardellini. Cardellini. Oh, that's her name. Yes. Yeah, I was not going to pull that name, but I can see her face in my head. What was the no, outstanding no, no, actress nomination? You know, she and Laura Tierney kind of look alike. I have to say that. <laughs> yeah, and they were both on ER, but yeah, she is starring with Christina Applegate on Netflix's Dead to Me. Dead to me, that's right. It's one of those I kept meaning to watch because it was Christina Applegate, and wow. Yeah, actually was nominated both as a producer and for acting in 2020. Oh, right. Devastating, I couldn't pull her in. All right, Christine and Monia now to steal from Lynn. In 2009, the British band Lulu and the Lampshades released a YouTube video in which they covered a folk song that had been around since the early 1930s. In what key way did they modify the original song? A 2013 cover version of that song by a different artist, clearly inspired by their innovation, peaked at number six on the U.S. charts. Monia, do you have any idea? I need to see this when he throws it up in the chat here. Okay, the Lulu and the Lampshades released a video where they covered a folk song that had been allowed since 19. Lulu and the Lampshades sounds vaguely familiar. So they so someone else covered it, and then they peaked at number six. And so this Lulu didn't chart. They just threw it up on YouTube, it looks like. Hmm. No, it seems pretty vague. Yeah. I'm guessing the lampshades doesn't have any, there's no clue in there. Probably not. I would think that maybe they changed the words to reflect some current events. Mm -hmm. It would be too early for Trump or something like that. It's so what, what's going on then. It's like, Obama presidency, we've just had a recession. But what's going on in Britain? No. Uh, I don't know. And of course. Hmm. I've version of the song by a different artist. Or they could have modified, I mean, would they have, would it modify it musically? If we can guess it, we can guess the modification without knowing the song. That's true. So he says in what key way, so I'm guessing it's something more interesting than changing the key. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, key and, was not a musical reference there at all. Okay, so 
It could be it could be singing it a cappella. It could be, you know, they wrapped it instead of singing it. That's kind of fun. Um, let's see, Hamilton. Hamilton was not famous yet, right? So it wouldn't be just like a copying Hamilton. They beatboxed it. I don't know. That's kind of <laughs> similar to rapping. So, so we have, we have a cappella. We have rapping. What are other ways they could do? Um, it's probably not something nerdy like singing it backwards. No, probably not. not. It's not really a cover. Really liking rapping is a reasonable guess. And folk song could be so broad. It could be Mary Had a Little Lamb. It could be um, well, folk song that's been around since the third, only since the thirties. So, I mean, I started thinking this land is your land. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing. Um, could it be something that's sort of a, about a depression or a recession? I thought of that too. Something like about the yeah, something about the depression. Mm-hmm. But I don't know any songs specifically about that. Or may, or maybe they're maybe they're singing about um, just changing it to sing about technology. Oh oh, just sing it. Oh, so maybe something to make it. Well, that was right when Twitter first came out, so it wouldn't be like something about Twitter. But it could make it make it about social media in some way. But I feel like social media, it was all still kind of. I feel like we could say broadly tech because it could be it could be about phones. It could be about, you know, Wi-Fi. It could be about social media. I think if we just say broadly tech. Something about tech made it sound about technology there. I like that. That's good. OK, so you're locking in made it about technology. Yeah, sure. Well, hold on. Do, do we want to? Because. Then the 2013 cover version is also inspired by their innovation by their innovation. So we go back to rapping. So does does innovation mean that they talked about technology or that they did something interesting musically? I don't know. It just it's just a, re, a rephrasing of they modified the song. Okay. Oh, what about what about what about auto tune? Uh, I don't think that would be as that would be so obvious. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be worth putting a YouTube video. Like, oh, we're auto-tuning this. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. 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 Which one's your favorite so far, then? My favorite is rapping. Okay. But I don't really want to take responsibility for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they're a band. They're not a rap act, but they can obviously rap if they so choose. So. Okay. All right. Let's go rap. They rapped it. All yeah. right. Like rapping. All right. Lynn. Lulu and the Lampshades doesn't feel like a hip-hop group, so I didn't think rapping. Lulu and the Lampshade feels very, like, indie to me. So it makes me feel like, I don't know, is it possible they did an acapella version of it? Because I have no idea what the song is. But 2013 is when Pentatonix was blowing up, and that's just about the time they came out. I don't know that Pentatonix has had a song that has peaked at number six on the U.S. charts, though. 2013 is also when EDM really started to blow up and you had artists like Avicii and Calvin Harris and all those guys really getting big. And Avicii did a lot of sampling of, oh, I wonder if this is Avicii's Hey Brother. You know, I'm going to say, I'm going to guess maybe this has something to do with an EDM artist. And I'm going to say they electronized or, or made it into an electronic version. All right. Yeah. By the way, I know I know Lynn has to leave in about an hour, so maybe we could try and get each question in about five minutes. Maybe put like a informal clock on it. Sure. Um, okay. So for this one, then your first thing that you said. Oh, sorry. You locked in again. They electronized it. You said. 
Yeah, they made it an electronic Okay, yeah. Version. So um, your first talk was more on target, right? 2013, very much the height of the acapella boom. And what was the movie that was part of that? Oh, Pitches for Eggs' Cups. Oh. Yeah. Uh, or no, yeah. 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 Original song was called When I'm Gone, but their their cover combined it with an old children's game, the cup game. Oh, uh, yeah. I should have thought of that. Yeah. Allowed Anna Kendrick to have a hit with cups, parentheses, when I'm gone. Mm, I didn't know that was an old song. Folk song. They learned something. It does sound kind of old and folksy, though. Folky, yeah. Why didn't I think of that? I totally, like, I was thinking about the Lennon sisters or the, um, Doing the cup thing with Call Your Girlfriend, and that went viral on YouTube. And she just thought laterally, and I would have gotten there. That's frustrating. All right. For Lynn and Monia to steal from Christine, the epigraph of the 1985 movie Runaway Train, no beast so fierce, but no sound touch of pity, but I know none, and therefore am no beast, comes from an exchange in Shakespeare's Richard III between Richard and what woman? In the same scene, Richard gaslights this woman about the deaths of her previous husband, Edward of Westminster, and his father, Henry VI, by asking her, is not the causer of their death as blameful as the executioner? And then telling her, your beauty was the cause of that effect. I did kill King Henry, but twas thy beauty that provoked me. Twas I that stabbed young Edward, but twas thy heavenly face that set me on. Um, I have no idea who is in Richard III. All I know is Richard III was an awful king. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I haven't, haven't gotten to this play in the Shakespeare Zoom reading group yet. So. <laughs> I don't know, Eleanor of Aquitaine? Like, that's a woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's okay, that's, that's, that's about where I'm at with this. Right, yeah, I, I, I really, I could not name a woman. Um, yeah, that, that, that's all I got, Monia. I really have no clue on this. Hmm. Sure. I like I like the gut instinct. I don't think I'll have something better to add. Eleanor Aquitaine final. Shakespeare's Richard, a terrible king, but a amazing pickup artist. <laughs> Christine. Yeah, Eleanor Aquitaine is like 200 years previous or longer. Yeah. No, I knew it was completely yeah. wrong. <laughs> okay. So I don't know the play, but I mean, but I know about Richard the Third, and. He tried to marry Elizabeth of York. He did marry Anne Neville. And uh, let's see. So Henry VI. I'm going to go with Anne Neville because I think she is the one that would have been previously married to Edward of Westminster. I'm going to maybe flip this coin the wrong way. But I don't think Elizabeth of York was married to Edward. So let's go with Anne Neville. Final. All right. All right. And um, yes, that's correct. It is Anne Neville. Uh, good job. Good job. Uh, yeah, she was married to the son of Henry VI and I think Margaret of Anjou. All right. Uh, Christine and Lynn to steal from Monia. Last question of this round. If you listen to episode six of this podcast, which is one of my top two or three episodes I've done so far, you may recall Nolan Werner mixing up ermine, the white icing used for red velvet cake, and the bright red pigment carmine. This bemused his opponent, David Plotkin, an expert in insects, because of the long-standing connection between carmine and which kind of insect. Specifically, the dye was traditionally extracted from the crushed-up bodies of these insects. Ah, Lynn. What are some bugs? <laughs> Wait, you're on mute. 
Oh, sorry. I was going to say, Monia, was your third category insects? Dang. Or die, <laughs> I guess. Cosmetic. Um, cosmetics. No, it was cosmetic ingredients. And, and Yogesh went the, he went the historical cosmetic ingredient route, which was completely opposite from what I was thinking. <laughs> Um, okay, so bright red pigment carmine. Carmine then has a long-standing connection between oh, a ladybug, right? I don't know, um, a bright red bug. Uh, sure. I mean, I don't know any other bright red bugs, you know, besides ladybugs. So that's all I can think of. Okay, ladybugs. Let's do it. Ladybug final. All right, I'll pass this to Monia. Okay, so that means that they are incorrect. Or you should treat it as incorrect. But yes, that is basically what it means in this case. Okay. So um, so I'm pretty sure that carmine is a beetle, but um, I didn't have ladybug specifically in my head. For some reason, like, dung beetle popped into my head. Hmm. So, so if somebody's getting confused about a food item and this, then I guess the dung beetle might actually make sense. So, um, I mean, the confusion was just ermine versus carmine because. Okay. Okay. Similar. Um, how about, can I, can I just say beetle? Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I've always thought it was, or until recently I thought it was a beetle. I think I associated it with like the scarab beetle because of the uh, Egyptian, yeah. which might be why you, you said dung, but, um, then I, yeah, apparently it's not really a beetle. It's called cochineal or cochineal. Oh, I actually thought that was a totally different insect and eye situation. Um, so the co- so the cochineal is the name of the beetle too. Or cochineal is the name of the insect. Yeah, cochineal is the name of the insect. Yeah, yeah. I, I for some reason I also thought that was an adjective related to the dye or something like that. But no. Nope. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was a completely different one. That's interesting. Okay, so so it all goes together then. Yeah. All right. So close game at going into the th- at the end of this round. Thirteen point one. Lynn. Sixteen point zero. Christine. Fourteen point zero. Monia. So it really couldn't be any closer. I mean, that's a really narrow margin. And now the point values go up to six points for a steal, five for a specialist, three for a bonus. And we'll begin with Christine and Monia to steal from Lynn. Until the 2016 census, one of the more confusing points of Canadian geography was that the capital and most populous city of Newfoundland and Labrador had nearly the same name as the most populous city of New Brunswick. Now, thanks to a shift in population, we now only have to deal with the much less confusing fact that the capital and most populous city of Newfoundland and Labrador has the exact same name as the capital and most populous city of Antigua and Barbuda. So what is that name, also shared with a neighborhood in Portland where some of my friends who listen to this podcast live? That's not a helpful clue if you're not from Portland, but it's a shout out to them. So this is me and Christine. Yeah. Okay. I think this is St. John. Uh, that's what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's let's, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. St. John. You're locking in St. John. All right. Lynn, is that right? Sounds good. Do you want to give another answer? Most populous. Oh, is this, oh. Mm. New Brunswick. Is that like Charlottetown? Charlottetown or Fredericton? I'll say Fredericton. Yeah, so the capital of New Brunswick is Fredericton. The most populous city now since 2016 is Moncton. But before that, St. John was actually the most populous city in New Brunswick. The capital of Newfoundland Labrador was St. John's. Well done, well done. I don't know who got the answer right right now. None of you got it right. None of you got it right. Oh, oh. You left off the S and I, I realized it too late. 
bloody hell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think to be loyal to all of the people who I've marked off before for yeah. also an NS, I have to give that really to you. Fair. Really fair. I, as soon as he asked, the way he asked it to you, Lynn, yeah. I, knew, I knew I'd messed it up. Yeah. Well, it's okay. I didn't pick up on it, so. <laughs> all right. Now, Lynn and Monia, to steal from Christine. The Trout is a 1969 documentary in which five classical musicians, four men and one woman, are brought together to perform Franz Schubert's Piano Quintet in A major, Deutsch catalog number 667, aka the Trout Quintet. All five of those musicians would go on to great fame, although two are best known as conductors, and four of them have served as conductors or music directors of major symphony orchestras at some point. Name any one of those five. All five of those musicians would go on to great fame, and two are best known as conductors. Literally just the other day, I was meaning to look up which instruments are actually in a piano quintet because it's not like five pianos. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But um, all five of those musicians have gone to great fame. So who are the famous conductors and music directors? You have like Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, that time period. Oh, oh, all five of those musicians would go on to great fame. So Bernstein was famous by 69. So they weren't famous till after 69. Um, I was I was thinking, I was wondering if Daniel Barenboim was was famous already at this point. I feel like maybe maybe he was just really young. Uh, who was he? I, I actually forget which um, symphony he conducts, but he's he's a famous conductor now. He's active now. Okay. So other, oh, yeah, it's other... definitely not like Dudamel. Um, no, he was, like... he was a fetus. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, he was Who a conducts the uh, Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra? I feel like that person's really famous, um, but I'm not recalling their name at the moment. Yeah, the, the kind of famous names are um, Zubin Mehta, Baron Boy, I'm like, you know, Bernstein, like you were saying, uh, Michael Tilson Thomas. Um, There's a guy from Israel, but Hoffman. he would have been famous pre-1969 as well. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever you want to go with, Monia, whoever you think is the most famous and would have been young enough to have, or young enough to have been picked and played in this document in 69, but not famous at that time. Yeah, I feel... I feel strongly about Baron Boyne because at one point he he was with Jacqueline Dupre and like she might have been the cellist, right? Okay. In this quintet. This is complete speculation on my part. Let's, let's do it. Let's go with that. So you're locking in Baron Boyne? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I will say that is correct, but before revealing the others, I'll ask Christine if she wants to name any of the other four for a bonus. Sweet. Um, Nicely done, Monia. Thank you. I am the one that came to my mind is Ishtar Perlman. So I'm throwing that in there. So all of you, there are a lot of good thoughts there. So the two in that group who went on to be primarily famous as conductors are Daniel Barenboim and Zubin Mehta, the two you mentioned. Nice. You got both of them. Yeah. The the other two who have done some conducting are, I think, the viola player, Pincha Zuckerman, and the oh. violinist, Itzhak Perlman. Nice. And as for the fifth member, the cellist, Moni actually guessed that one correctly, too. It was Jacqueline Dupre. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I Crushed don't, it. Yeah, I don't know about this quintet, but I was kind of like, who, like, four men and one woman, like, who would be who would be famous enough to be, you know, potentially put together at that, at right. that time? And right. Itzhak Perlman was the name, the guy from Israel that I was trying to think of. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's tricky because in music 
director is more typically somebody who's famous for their instrument, like as a soloist, like more mm. so more so than a conductor. What's it? And that Baron Boyne would have been the pianist in that group, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Maybe I don't. I don't know if he's a multi instrumentalist or not. But, but yeah, like like I think of, like Placido Domingo was music director of the of the LA Opera, but he's obviously like now canceled for his yeah. instrument. Yeah, uh, definitely now canceled. Yeah, yeah. The trunk quintet is a bit odd because it's just a piano quintet. It's not actually a piano plus a conventional string quartet. It actually includes a string bass, which is what Zubin made that played. Mm, okay. Now, Christine and Lynn to steal from Monia. Often described as the first perfume, Hungary water, aka the queen of Hungary's water, was the leading alcohol-based perfume in Europe until the rise of eau de cologne in the early 18th century. Pray you, love, remember that what was the primary ingredient in Hungary water? This plant grows wild on the Gallipoli Peninsula, hence why it's traditionally worn on Anzac Day in Australia to commemorate fallen soldiers. So, Hungary water. <laughs> was the leading alcohol-based perfume until Eau de Cologne in the early. Pray you, love. Pray you, love is probably a hint of some sort of hint. Um, what was the primary ingredient in hungry water? All right. So, I mean, other countries, they wear poppies to commemorate fallen soldiers, but I'm guessing not. This is not poppies. This is not poppies. So, the Gallipoli Peninsula. So, this is... What are flowers associated with, like, prayer, maybe? Pray you, love, remember that. Well, it's, it sounds like something, okay, like from a Shakespeare or something. Like, you know, they use pray as an old-fashioned word for, you know, they used to say beg. I pray you, what do you... <laughs> oh, I see. Yes, yes. Maybe it's just a rose. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? I mean, rose, you know, rose perfume. Yeah. I could see a rose growing wild on a peninsula somewhere. And, like, yeah, you wear a rose to commemorate fallen soldiers. This feels logical to me. If this is incorrect, I'm going to be mad, and I believe they should wear roses to commemorate fallen soldiers somewhere. <laughs> Instead okay. of whatever whatever inferior. Instead of whatever ugly-ass flower you must be wearing. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd go with it, rose. Roses, final. Right, you locked in Rose. All right, Monia. So, once again, the um, the supposed wheelhouse category of Monia has taken a very historical turn that I did not anticipate. Um, <laughs> I I was think I actually thought that roses were worn on Anzac Day, but well, and the um, you know the, the fact that Bulgaria is famous for roses makes me think that they also grow well in Hungary, but it being described as a plant as opposed to a flower kind of takes me away a little bit. So hmm. if I had, if I had to come up with an alternate guess, what would be the first perfume Then I might, you know, I might get something like honeysuckle. Is that your guess? My, my original guess was Rose, but then you're, you're, you're sending it to me. So I would have cut you off by this point if it were Rose. Okay. Okay, sure. I'll, I'll, then I'll, I'll submit honeysuckle. All right. Yeah. So I had to revise this question this week. So when I first wrote it, it included the words "do from the sea," and then of course Thorsten scooped me by making that a clue in Learned League this week. <laughs> it's not rose. It's rosemary. Ah. Uh, that 
that crossed my mind for a split second, and then I said, nah, nobody wants to smell like that on their body. <laughs> okay, who is wearing rosemary? On um, You know, they should be wearing roses. Well, I guess, I guess back then probably anything smells better than the body odors, so. Right, yeah. You're not going to be picky. Yeah, and the, the reference was, was to Shakespeare, to Ophelia's line, that's rosemary for remembrance, pray you love, remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right. Now, Christina and Monia to steal from Lynn. What prolific director of music videos, including Iggy Azalea's Fancy, Drake's Hotline Bling, Fifth Harmony's Work From Home, Rihanna's Work, DJ Khaled's Pop Star, and Ariana Grande's 34 Plus 35, also helmed the 2018 future-produced remake of Superfly, it is unclear what happened to this man's nine predecessors. Okay, so most of the nine predecessors, so so he's like somebody the tenth? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Is there any any director you can think of who calls himself the tenth? No. Or uh, X. Oh, or X. Um, well, there's like Lil Nas X, but he's like 18 and he's not a music yeah. director. Um the only really music video directors I know are Spike Jones, who I don't think did all of these, and a guy he's not um ah his name his name it's it's not it's not Mark Ronson because he's the he's the the music producer with yeah, the, the same as a director of a video with Amy Winehouse. But there's a there's a there's somebody else whose whose name sounds like Mark Ronson that is a big music video guy, but. But yeah, he's not the tenth anything. Um, I think this is some guy who's g- given himself a stage name. Yeah, something X. I'm just I'm just running through the alphabet here. So I certainly have not seen any you know any kind of music journalism you know referring to someone who's spelling out the name the tenth or anything like that. Or just ten. Who's just calling himself ten? That could exist, and I wouldn't know. Or I mean something ten. Hmm. Oh wait, hold on. Maybe. Oh, you know what? I was, I was thinking of I was thinking of Phase Ten, but I think that's a board game. Oh yeah, it is. Okay, that's all I got then. Okay, then we need a good guess. Maybe it's maybe it's some guy who calls himself Level Ten. Okay, Level Ten. <laughs> oh yeah, um, it was you know per- yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons I encourage people to guess. It is certainly possible to. Yeah, uh, get okay. You know, I'm forget I said anything. I'll just pass this to Lynn. Um, all right, they were on the right track, I guess. I have seen all these music videos, and I would have paid attention to whoever's name appeared at the beginning of them. And I have most recently watched 34 and 35. So, and I wish I'd paid attention to Ariana Grande's Instagram post when she talked about who did this video with her. Um, Mike Will made it is the only music video director whose name comes to me at the time. It's obviously not him. Um, so it's not level 10. Let's say stage 10. You're looking in stage 10? Yeah. All right, yeah. So what I was clumsily attempting to say was that attempting to fraud this person's name just based on my hand is actually a fairly decent strategy. Uh, in fact, if maybe you'd uh, been a, even just more straightforward than that you, and, and just thought really dumbly and not try to get clever about it, you might have actually, you might have actually uh, stumbled onto his uh, professional name, which is... Director X. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> I think it's Director. If I ever meet him, I'll call him Director the Tenth and see what happens. <laughs> All right. 
now Lynn and Monia to try and steal from Christine. I'll say in advance, I will accept a first name on this question, if it's the correct first name. One of the trickiest feats in quizzing is differentiating between the two pretenders who challenge the throne of Henry VII, Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck, but you don't have to do that here, because this question is about a figure connected to both of them. So, because his handler Richard Simons presumed this man to be dead, Lambert Simnel impersonated what nephew of Richard III and potential Yorkist heir? As it turned out, this man was alive at the time, but likely mentally impaired due to being imprisoned in the Tower of London from the age of 10. Later, he was joined in the Tower of London by Perkin Warbeck, and the two were executed together in 1499 after an alleged escape attempt. So we are back on the prison team. Yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew we'd come back. Oh, so he said just the first name would do. I mean, we can get to Henry. There are a lot of Henrys coming after the throne. Wasn't there oh, I, I, Edward who was imprisoned in the Tower of London as a kid? I was also going to say Edward is the other name I would also throw out. Okay. Hmm. I feel like and Edward was executed after an alleged escape attempt. I feel like Edward sounds unluckier than Henry. Um, Henry, so after Richard III, it was Henry's four, five, and six. Oh, no, 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 no. It was Henry's seven and eight. Yeah, Dick the Bad, Henry's twain, Ned Six the Lad. So it is... <laughs> It, yeah, it's it, so I feel like it wouldn't be the same name as the guy who eventually takes the throne, which is Henry right. VII. So right. yeah, let's go. With, let's let's go with an Edward. Okay. All right. Edward. Not an Edward. All right, Christine, is yeah. that right? I think it is. Yeah, it's it's hard to differentiate all these people, but even in, Shakespeare calls like Edward of Westminster Plantagenet, but generally, yeah, uh, Anne Neville's husband uh, was called Edward of, of Westminster. George, due yes! to his son. His son was called Edward Plantagenet, but you just gave Edward, which is fine. So that is correct. Yay, we did it. That was pretty <laughs> easy. Drama, yeah. a super hard question. <laughs> <laughs> you said it was a super hard question? No, this yeah. is supposed to be the super hard round. <laughs> yeah. So, so specifying which Edward it was would be much harder, I think, because you have to yeah. wade through all the different Edwards who were playing around the time. But sure. yeah, he didn't really yeah. have a regular number because he never became king. So... I mean, Christine, do you want to give his like no his name as a noble? As a noble? Yeah, like you know, like George Monk was Duke of Albemarle. Yeah, um, Duke of York, maybe. Uh, no, it, it can't because his uh, grandfather was was Richard Neville, uh, so he was also technically Earl of Warwick. Warwick. Okay. Alrighty. Okay. Next question, Monia. Uh, sorry, Christine and Lynn to steal for Monia. Uh, Celine Dion, Dion's second top five hit in the U.S. was a 1992 cover of what song penned by Diane Warren for the 1989 James Bond movie License to Kill? It originally played over that film's closing credits in a version by Patti LaBelle. Oh. Hide your face, Christine. Oh, yeah, I don't need your face. This is a question. Okay. So... 1992, Diane Warren. What I know about License to Kill is it is the one James Bond movie to star Timothy Dalton, and that's all I can say about it. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of two movies to star Timothy Dalton. To star Timothy, Timothy Dalton as Bond. The one Celine Dion hit that I can think of from that time period is The Power of Love, but that doesn't sound like something that would be a James Bond a James Bond. It's been sung by Patti LaBelle, so... Aren't all James Bond movies about the power of love? How many listen to Sam Smith and Adele do their versions of uh, 
unrequited love for their James Bond themes. That's, that's uh, the fact that Yogesh chimed in makes me think that's not right. But. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's and, and it's cementing it in my brain even more. Like I know it's not right, and it's yet it's blocking my ability to come up with something else. Hits from that era. Yeah, oh, Celine Dion, Diane Warren. I, I'm I'm lost. I I cannot. I cannot pull anything else out of my brain. Love final. Yeah, just leave the, the power of love. Sorry. Uh, all right, Tanya. Yeah, I, I can I can sort of picture really young Celine Dion like breaking through to the U.S., but I I can't remember you know her earliest earliest songs. And I think Power of Love is Diane Warren, but I think that's later, and it's and it's her song. It wasn't it wasn't coming from something earlier. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a guess for this one. All right, so you're just passing? Right. Sure. I didn't right. know you could do that. <laughs> I mean, it's not a good strategy, but, like, I can't stop you from doing it. Like, you could just say, you mean, you can just make up nonsense words, like, uh-huh. like is passing. <laughs> like, okay, fine, I'll, ma- I'll make up, I'll make up nonsense words. Um, love me forever. <laughs> That's not, not the worst guess in the world. But yeah, this song, so over the opening credits of that movie was License to Kill by Gladys Knight. Over the closing credits, Patti LaBelle sang, If You Ask Me To. Oh my god. Oh, of course. Feel bad. <laughs> what did you say, Lynn? heard of it, so I don't feel bad. I can probably sing you that entire song I just forgot about. <laughs> okay, so we're down to the last three questions now. Each of you are going to get one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. You actually were all pretty heavily bunched up until the Edward question, which put Lynn and Monia ahead. Uh, anyone can still win. All right, Christine and Monia, two steal from Lynn. Having decided for whatever reason to do a movie, I return to that all-encompassing critical discussion. What is the movie about? Work can't begin until its limits are defined, and this is the first step in that process. It becomes the riverbed into which all subsequent decisions will be channeled. So wrote Sidney Lumet in a section of his outstanding must-read book, Making Movies, in which he boils down several of his films into a theme that can be expressed in a single sentence. For instance, Dog Day Afternoon is, freaks are not the freaks we think they are. Both Daniel and Running on Empty are, who pays for the passion and commitments of the parents. And no less than three of his films, the Anderson tapes, Failsafe and Network, can be summed up in four words, the machines are winning. But for 12 Angry Men, Lumet goes even further. He reduces the film's central theme to a single imperative word. What is that key verb? So uh, do, you, do you know 12 Angry Men, Christine? I mean, I know what it's about. I've read it. I've read it before. It's been a long time. Yeah, same. It's, um, it's a jury, so it could be win. And it's imperative, so it's like, it'll be something like win or defeat or convince. My first thought was vote, because they have to vote. But I don't think that's right. That's not, no, it's not the theme. Like, they're they're in conflict. Right. So they start off with all but one voting to convict. And then... The one who is holding out for acquittal gradually, one by one, convinces the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it could be... Could it be acquit? Could it be believe? Like, believe the... I like I like something like believe because, because I don't think it has to do with something where the actual outcome of the court case matters. It's more like 
everybody's objective is to, you know, is to win or to defeat or to make the other person believe or to, you know, or to convince. Or, or is the word, is the verb doubt? Like telling like people. Like to doubt. Like doubt. Or well, what about question? Like questioning what the other person is saying or questioning what you are saying. It doesn't sound very imperative, though. I like believe better as far as grammatically, just based on the question. But right, because it's an imperative is a command word. Yeah. I don't know. Um, how about compel? Do you order someone to compel, though? That doesn't. Mm, okay. I don't know. I'm probably going to be wrong whatever I pick. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point at which the audience hears me getting very tired. <laughs> <laughs> and also hungry. Uh-oh. Always have snacks. Yeah, I, I, ate, I ate before this started, and I thought that would be sufficient, and apparently not. Christine, your imperative is snack. <laughs> eat. That is my imperative. <laughs> All right. No, um, We're almost done. Don't worry. You can go with believe, maybe. I, I don't. I like, I like something that's more about the other people kind of trying to push the other people. All right. You pick. So convince, defend. Um, Compel, and it's a theme. It could, it could be, it could be protect as well, like protect justice. I like or, that. Or enforce. Or uh, oh, what about uphold, like upholding principles? Ah, uh, that's really good. I like that. Okay, yeah, and I think it's general enough. Okay, let's do let's do uphold because we could be here all day for that one. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you at least had the single word verbs to pick from, so that's not quite as restrictive restrictive as U.S. states, but it's a decently restrictive group. All right, Lynn. Oh, that's a good exercise. That's a good question. Um, so yeah, it starts out with you know everyone's prejudiced against this kid. He's from the wrong side of the tracks. They think he's guilty, and then slowly, one by one, they become convinced by juror number eleven, I believe it is. Um. So I'm thinking maybe verbs like overturn is what I have written down here. Something like maybe just think or convince, consider. I do kind of like question and believe, which both of you threw out. I wonder if it's something as simple as just think, like think about it a little more, you know, before you all decide. Um, or question, question feels like a weird imperative verb. So convince, overturn, overturn feet. I'm going to go with think, final answer. All right. Yeah, you're all really, you're all really, you know, staring on the right way of thinking about it. You were all dancing around it. And you were all kind of getting to the, what, what is the film really about, right? It is about sort of convincing other people, being open to being convinced by others, thinking things through, not just jumping to conclusions. But the one word that's kind of the moral of the story, what you're supposed to take away from it, listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, good. Nice. All right. And now Lynn and Monia to steal from Christine. Last time you'll get to steal from her. I think I've been stealing from more than anyone. I just want to pass <laughs> it. <laughs> what name is given in the book of Genesis to two different figures? One, the grandson of Noah, claimed by many different Iberian peoples, including Basques, as their progenitor. And the other, a blacksmith descended from Cain, who also appears as the main antagonist of the 2014 big-budget Hollywood film Noah. Another individual with this name is the only male Jewish character, the only male Jewish character in The Merchant of Venice, aside from Shylock. Gareth Armstrong's modern one-man show about Shylock is presented from the perspective of that character. Oh my goodness! <clears throat> Noah. So this is not like 
Seth or whatever's Ham, whatever their names are. These are the sons of Noah. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was Cain, and then it was a blacksmith descending from Cain. Mm. Is it Isaiah? But we can go with that in that he does have a lot of descendants. Mm-hmm. Do you remember an Isaiah in The Merchant of Venice? I only know Shylock. Mm-hmm. I don't specifically remember an Isaiah in The Merchant of Venice. That doesn't mean that they were not there. I'm wondering how how popular this one man show is and if we would recognize the name. Oh, I guess I guess it's not necessarily titled by that name. So we can't really lean on that. Hmm. I'm wondering about like Elias or Ethan too, something like that. Ethan, I don't mind. Okay. Which one do you like better? In final. Oh, but you're dropping out what? In yeah, and you're, out. You're dropping. You're like I can hear like every all right, I'm, I'm switching to my laptop, sorry. Can you hear me now? Much yes. better. Okay, uh, let's go with Ethan. Which I think is a biblical name. Yeah, Ethan Final. All right, uh, I don't recall that name in the Bible, actually, but uh, uh-huh. okay. Sure, Christine? Hi, this is Future Yogesh dropping in to vindicate Monia, although her answer was wrong. She was correct that Ethan is a biblical name. It appears eight times in the Bible, most notably as the author of Psalm 89. Okay, well, I didn't even have to hide my face on this one because, wow, I'm actually blanking here. Grandson of Noah, that is a gap in my genealogy knowledge right there. His three sons were Hamsham and Japheth. And Japheth is the one that is traditionally thought of to be the ancestor of European people. And then a blacksmith descended from Cain. My first thought was Nimrod, but I don't think that's it. He was a warrior. He was not a blacksmith. And then there was Tubal Cain, who was, wow. And I don't know my Shakespeare well enough. My main takeaway from this is I really need to get to work on the Shakespeare. (laughs) As we need to get to work on the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I keep thinking Lamech, but that was Noah's father. The blacksmith descended from Cain. He was the father of all those. You know what? I'm going. This is. I think this is the musician, but let's go with Jubal, J U B A L, and just go with that. Lock that in. I don't think it's right, but it's. I'm close to it. <laughs> so go ahead. You're extremely close to it. Yes. You are exactly one letter away from it. You, you, you said, so, I mean, I kind of stretched a point, right, because I said the name appeared. In one case, it does appear as a compound. In Cain's descendant, it's part of the compound name, Tubal Cain. Oh, I did say Tubal Cain, and then I changed <laughs> it. Oh, okay. Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. But, um, yeah, it's, it's my own fault. All right, the last question of the game now, Christine and Lynn to steal from Monia. Uh, yeah. so, you have to get this if I want to win. <laughs> Lynn is 0.9 points behind Monia, so if she gets this, she will win. Yes. So I, I have, you know, it doesn't matter to me because I'm out of it no matter what, so. But you can be the, the kingmaker or queenmaker, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, this is yet another question about ER, so you might have your shot. Here. Hell yeah, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, over the course of its 14 seasons, ER received 14 nominations in the Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series category. 
That's not counting its eight for outstanding guest actress in a drama series, two of which went to Sally Field. One was Rosemary Clooney, as I mentioned earlier. But anyway, of those 14 in the guest actor category, they were earned by 14 different male actors, an illustrious list that includes three Oscar winners and six other Oscar-nominated performers. Name any one of those 14. Wow. Wow. So the first guest performance, first guest actor that I thought of was very significant, had a pretty significant role, but I don't know about his Oscar nominations. Who are you thinking? You know, at this point, I'm just like, should I hold out for like a bribe from either one of y'all? No, no, the first one I thought of was Alan Alda. Alan Alda does have Oscar nominations. Then I would go with that. Yeah, because he, I'm pretty sure, was nominated for, of all things, Little Miss Sunshine. Am I completely wrong on that? Mm, okay, but I'm pretty sure he has Oscar nominations. Alan Alda, final. You're lucky in Alan. So, interestingly enough, the one who won the Oscar for Little Miss Sunshine was Alan Arkin. Ah! Who- was actually nominated for appearing on a show his son was regular on, Chicago Hope, which was <laughs> a long-time rival show to ER. But what you said was Alan Alda, who was Oscar-nominated for playing a senator in The Aviator, won an Emmy for playing a different senator on The West Wing, and <laughs> appeared in the episode Truth and... Well, he appeared in multiple episodes, but for the episode Truth and Consequences of ER in 2000, was Emmy-nominated. So that is a correct answer. Yay! Good job, Christine! Was well that the, was that the strychnine poisoning episode? I don't I don't know actually. Sorry. I did, yeah, they he, were um they were they they were like sidelining him because they thought he was too old, and then he he knew how to save the patient because they'd gotten this old school poisoning that none of the youngins knew how to cure, which was very cool. I think that's probably the episode, but I don't know. I might edit in at this point a list of reading out the whole list, but I, I won't do that in this taping now since I know mm-hmm. when to go. So uh, the final scores are Lynn 31.1, Christine 25.0, Monia 26.0. Nicely done. Good job, everyone. Extremely close finish there. Basically one question either way would have swung it to anyone. I'm um, still mad I, I got on song incorrect. Earlier, but you know, I'm a little, a little appalled about the Linda Cardellini and Celine Dion situations for sure. <laughs> and I need to reread Genesis or read Genesis because <laughs> I never want that to happen again. <laughs> but your, your, your job sounds harder than ours. I just have to like listen to a Celine Dion album and I'll be good. <laughs> Hi everyone. One final note from Future Yogish. If Monia and Christine had remembered to put that apostrophe S on the end of St. John's, the final scores would have been Christine 31.0, Lynn 31.1, Monia 32.0, which would have been our closest finish to date. Also, here is the full list of Emmy-nominated guest actors on ER. Alan Rosenberg, Vondi Curtis-Hall, William H. Macy, Ewan McGregor, Alan Alda, James Cromwell, Don Cheadle, Bob Newhart, Red Buttons, Ray Liotta, James Woods, Forrest Whitaker, Stanley Tucci, and Ernest Borgnine. Answering any of those on question 27 would have earned you full credit. So normally at this point, the first one to speak would be Christine, but I know Lynn has to leave in about in a few minutes, so if you want to take the first final statement spot, you can. Oh, what am I supposed to say? 
anything you want to. It can be about the game, about the world at large, about some combination of those things, anything you want to plug. Basically, as long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. Okay, sure. Um, well, thank you, Yogesh, for having us on the show. And it was delightful, Christine Ammonia, playing against you both, learning things about Beatles, uh, not Beatles, and Rosemary, and prison. We learned a lot about prison today, or people who have connections to such things. Um, but for everyone listening, Trivia LA is the trivia company that I co-run with my business partner, Chris. We can be found across all social media platforms at Play Trivia LA and are on Instagram and Facebook, all that good stuff. So you can find us on various social media anywhere. All right. Yeah. Sorry, I had that wrong. As the winner, Lynn actually was supposed to speak first. So that's ah. fine. All right. And then second place, Monia? Yeah. So I have nothing to plug at the moment, but um, if you want to follow my writing, you can follow me on Facebook at Ammonia Day or uh, Twitter at Med Journalist. And I don't know if this episode is going to air before the end of the holiday season, but I would definitely encourage everyone to subscribe to some kind of journalism entity or get it as a gift for somebody you know, because all those articles that you've been seeing come out about the coronavirus and the presidency or lack thereof, all that comes from really hardworking journalists and editors who are constantly in fear of losing their jobs because of lack of funds. So your subscriptions really do mean something. It's a timeless message. Thank you. And uh, Christine? Thank you for having me on your show again. I've enjoyed it very much. I have a Facebook page, The Trivial Pianist, uh, which combines classical music and trivia. I would uh, encourage you all to visit that page and like it. Awesome. This has been episode four of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rao. Thanks for listening.